everybody. Welcome to the program. I am your host, Chris George Zuger, and you have entered the Den of Lore. Uh, sorry if we got a little bit of uh, delay there. Internet problems, technology is the way that it is, but still, grab yourselves a glass of scotch, pull your chairs up to the fire, and, uh, well, yeah, we're going to learn some cool shit tonight. Uh, we've got quite the program on for you tonight. We're going to be watching Magical Egypt, or at least a couple episodes of it, with Randall Carlson and uh, Duncan Trussell. And uh, in addition to that, we also have the boys from Grimerica on. I've got uh, Adam Loyal from Friends to Know. Um, I also have uh, Brendan Powell, from, uh, uh, who's a good friend of Cameron Wilshire, who is also on the program. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be uh, uh, not necessarily riffing, but very much commenting on the different aspects of Magical Egypt as we watch through it, and uh, obviously enjoy a couple of drinks as we go. Um, I hope you enjoy the program, and again, if uh, uh, you do have any questions, please do pop it into the chat, I'll try and get to everyone, uh, but most of all, if this is your first time listening, please do, uh, yeah, please do subscribe to the channel, check out Den of Lore, and uh, we do have another uh, uh, pieces of information that uh, we are going to be throwing out there, um, uh, as well as uh, talking about our fundraising efforts over the last couple of uh, weeks. Uh, now... I am going to uh, just uh, welcome everyone onto the show. So let me just turn her down here just a little bit. Uh, who is all there at the moment? Hello. 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 Is Parker that... here. Uh, Michael Parker is on the program. Thank you very much for joining us, Michael. Uh, Darren, thank you for joining. Uh, and uh, I also have a chance from Magical Egypt Studios, a uh, very distinguished guest who is uh, uh, someone that I've actually been trying to get onto the show and thinking, I got to talk to this guy. He seems really awesome. So, uh, you know, and also I can see you're in Australia as well, if I'm not mistaken. So enjoy the 45 degree weather. I'm so jealous. You wouldn't be if you were here. Oh, I know. I've spent time in Melbourne. It's a beautiful place. And of course, it was also minus 40 back home. So... Uh, and also, I've got uh, Cameron Wiltshire, who is uh, looking absolutely fantastic in his fly short sleeve shirt. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, how is everyone doing tonight? Very good. Good. Very, very good. <clears throat> okay, give me just a second here. Apparently... All right, apparently we're getting some buffering issues on, on this end, so uh, just give me just one quick moment here. I'm going to just run downstairs, and I'm going to switch... Uh, I'm going to see if I can switch uh, internet providers for this, so give me 30 seconds. Uh, Cameron, are you there? Cameron? He's physically there. He's physically there. Cam Cameron, we're, we're getting nothing from you, buddy. Cameron's on mute. I'm on YouTube. You're on YouTube. <laughs> hey, man. Oh, well, uh, Cameron. Uh, while while I'm uh, doing some emergency maintenance on on our router, if uh, you'd care to just uh, spend a couple minutes uh, detailing the funding um, uh, efforts that we've done over the last week between your your uh, Den of Lore and Sacred Geometry International, and uh, describe to the listeners uh, some of the perks that they could be getting. Okay, one moment. Are we live now? We're live now. Way to put me on the spot, buddy. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, well, we're doing a fundraiser uh, for John Anthony West. Uh, he's got stage four cancer. He's currently in Houston with uh, Dr. Brzezinski seeking alternative treatment and therapy. Uh, it's pretty pricey stuff, but he has a good track record of success. So last week, let's see, we had Randall Carlson. We had uh, Laird Scranton, 
Robert Schock, Randall Carlson, uh, and anyone else I'm forgetting, please forgive me. Oh, yeah, Ed Nightingale. Uh, so the perks we have to offer, Sacred Geometry International, we've got signed copies of Cosmic Patterns and Cycles of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Catastrophe. We've got our level one classes. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, good mojo, good karma. I mean, make us an offer. There's, if you've got money you want to give to John and you see something in our store you want, we'll give it to you. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it so far. Anybody else want to chime in there? I think we were going to do uh, for this one, anyone who, for, for three people anyway, the first three people, if there's anyone who wants to that donate $200 or more can uh, sit in and we'll, we'll interview whoever they want through our uh, platform. <laughs> but I do have like hundreds of magnets. So if people want magnets, they could have some of those too. Well, that's, <laughs> I could that's get probably awesome. a lock of, I could probably get a lock of Randall Carlson's hair for anything over 200 yeah, you get a couple, yeah. That's right. Couple. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I have, a, I have a pillow that Randall used when he slept here. <laughs> auction that up. It's funny because I've got a pillow uh, from uh, Brandon Powell when he slept here. So I think oh, perfect. I can we'll have that. a little theme going. <laughs> hey, um, gentlemen, on the Magical Egypt website, too, there's a series of T-shirts that we made just for John and just to commemorate this uh, thing. And 100% uh, of the proceeds from all the swag are going to John's efforts as well. So on the Magical Egypt website, if you want to buy a T-shirt, a Magical Egypt T-shirt or a John West T-shirt, uh, you can do that, too, and help out his situation. You know, that's, that's Those are handsome shirts. I, I saw those the other day. Those are quite good. You know, Cheers. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it's fantastic. I'd love to be able to walk around with, you know, just Sphinx on it and John Anthony West's photo on my, uh, you know, on my chest. That That's just something that just pe screams cool. There's totally. a bunch of John Westisms, just some immortal John Westisms like Groggle. And, and there's a bunch of funny things that John uniquely says that people on his tours um, bandy about. And we've had a whole series of different T-shirts made kind of commemorating all of the John Westisms. <laughs> How about this, Chris? If uh, someone donates a thousand dollars or more, uh, Grand America will pay for you to get that T-shirt tattooed on your chest. Nice. <laughs> Hell yeah! Hell yeah! <laughs> yeah, no, I I would love to be able to see that. Unfortunately, though, that's a needles scare the crap out of me. So there's uh, a very very little chance you'll actually have see me. I would donate a thousand dollars, but I would not get the tattoo. So two thousand. Two thousand. Somebody donates a million, I'll cut off one of my pinkies like a yakuza. You know, I, I would I would totally, totally live to be able to see that. Um, it's got to be a million, though. It's my <laughs> pinky. Uh, now, I think, like, workers' comp gives you, like, 4500 bucks Canadian. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's, like, 3000 U.S. Gotcha. When Venice and I first got to Australia, we got in a terrible car accident, and... Um, she broke her neck and it, it all worked out okay. But on the day we went to the hospital, uh, somebody, some Australian guy was chopping trees in his yard with a hatchet and he fell out of the tree and the uh, chainsaw fell down and cut his arm off. Holy and uh, within a month, within a month, they had it reattached and he was just, um, he was all good. Apparently, I had no idea that medicine has proceeded to that extent. But anyway, if you, you could probably cut your finger off a number of times and to have it sewn back on. <laughs> well, I'm willing to do wow. that. And he recovered like cut. motor, I mean, 
his arm worked after that? He was totally good. I don't know if he was a like concert violinist after that, but I mean, right. it was there and he had a cool scar to brag on. And, um, but it was, I had no idea. It was fully operational. Which they part of Australia are you in? I am currently in the Sunshine Coast by Brisbane. It's one of the least hip parts of Australia. He's yeah, my wife's from Melbourne. That is totally the hip part of Australia, at least for students. No, it, it's pretty cool. It's really cool. Um, we used to live in Nimbin, which is like the Amsterdam of Australia. Um, and uh, there's no place on earth quite like that. If you've ever spent any time in Amsterdam, um, Australia is like that. Only the people are much less uptight and everyone speaks English. Right. With the hookers and everything. <laughs> well, you know, they're a little hairier, and uh, but they're cheaper, and um, it's all good. That's a give and take. They have a good it's attitude. Different. All of life is a give and take. Now, Adele, what, 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 does, what work have you been doing? Okay, I should, let, me, let me take a step back here, because this is going to be a very l- long answer, I'm guessing. I know that John <laughs> Anthony West mentioned at one point that Magical Egypt 2 was in the works, and this might have been, um, you know, it might have actually been the Joe Rogan uh, this might have actually been Joe Rogan's uh, uh, podcast for that. And that was the first time I heard of it actually being, you know, being done. Or it may have been on, on Fade to Black. I'm, I'm actually not too sure. Uh, mm. But between those two, like, when, when did he uh, finally approach you to, to, to get the things going? Or has it been something that you guys have been working on for a long time? You know, for a really long time, we, we've talked about it all the time. When it first came out, it was very much like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was just a colossal face flop commercially. And, you know, if you ever hear Tim Curry or anybody talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, nobody's really excited about it. Nobody made much money on it. And everyone thought it was just a huge failure until years later when it started to get this weird second life on the Internet. Because it's very clearly not a you know a commercial standard television fair. So we talked about it on and off for a long time. Um and uh but you know for a long time egyptology was sort of stagnant and nothing much happened and then just within the last maybe three years all of this stuff happened gobekli tepe and laird scranton's done all this amazing work and um there's this guy who's a real prominent part of the new new magical age of gary osborne has made these series of unbelievable discoveries this new kid brad clopson so kind of the next generation after john west um uh this whole generation of people Incredible findings have just sort of all started happening once in the last maybe three years. So I've been working on this show for about three years. We're scheduled to release it at the end of the month. So it is so much better. It's so much bigger. It's so much weirder. Um, this time, 15 years later, we have a very clear picture of who the audience is. When we did this originally, it was this weird sort of outsider thing that just, you know, weirdos and and people who've done too much LSD. It was a very, you know, strange crowd. And it's become a much bigger kind of threshold subject now and so thanks to joe rogan's evangelizing and you know john keeps getting higher and higher in profile and um he was a little secret you know back in the old days he was like my grateful dad i could follow him around and film him and he was a very insider fringe thing and you know 15 years later it's a whole different thing and so anyway um it's that's a long answer it's but um the reason it's taken 15 years to do another one we never stopped talking about it but just recently all this stuff's happened and another little aside the animation software has changed so much recently a big part of the new show is animated scenes and vignettes of what might have gone on back in the day and i've um been working for two years on the animations that are in the show i did the soundtrack this time that took me a year so we've been working on the show for a long time that was a really long answer i'm sorry about that you know you know we we don't have a time limit on this show 
So you, you can go as long as you want. Great. You know, pe- people will may, may come in, drop out, fall asleep halfway through the All show. Right. You know, they wake back up, they join back in. It's it's part of part of the magic. As long as there's scotch involved, people are happy. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> well, it all started back in the Eisenhower administration. I don't even have any scotch. I'm all about the tequila in this household. <laughs> tequila? Oh man, in, in tequila in Australia, oh, it's oh. also like stupid expensive. Oh, everything is exactly twice as much. Guitars, cars, and alcohol are exactly twice as much. Now, wow! It, like, is is that like nationwide, or is that just you know localized within certain areas? It's all of Australia. And the really funny thing, um, they just did this kind of hit piece on the guy who owns IKEA, and they just demonstrated that the people in New Zealand, which is you know not too far from here, people in China and people in Japan, nobody else in the world pays twice as much. But Australians <laughs> have been sort of collectively scammed that shipping costs and everything make everything twice as expensive. And it's just that the politicians are bolder here and they grift more than any other country. Um, the, our old president made as much as Obama. Julia Gillard made the same amount of money as Obama. Uh, like the politicians do really well here, and the poor consumers uh, kind of take it in the shorts. <laughs> I shouldn't be talking about this because I'll get kicked out. No, well, of the country or of this chat, because we, we don't censor the, people. On this, <laughs> we don't censor people on there's this a, program. <laughs> there's a funny thing in Australia. You know, you go to a store and you knock over a lamp, and if you break it, you have to buy it. So. My wife's Australian, and I brought her over here, and I got in a car wreck, and I broke her neck, so I had to buy the cow. We had to get married and stay here, and now I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I'm free to say and what I'm not. Because the queen, the queen owns me. I'm a subject of the queen now. <laughs> I'm Canadian. I'm a subject of the queen. I'm also a Freemason. Oh, see? We, 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 we hail to the queen every meeting. Take that for what you're you will, know, listeners. Um, me and Lon, I don't know if you know Lon Duquette from the original Magical Egypt, is also in the, um, he's a huge part of the new show. Lon and I went to the head of Freemasonry. Lon got his 32nd degree a while back. And um, what an amazing place. Have you been to the, um, the head of the Masonic, uh, you know, the head of Freemasonry in London? Not in London. I haven't uh, been to in London. I, I know a, uh, a past grandmaster here in Ottawa and, and a, somebody who's uh, running for grandmaster here in, in, in Ontario, um, or at least, you know, it's a province of, in Canada, province of Ontario, but it's still just Ontario. <clears throat> so it kind of the same thing, but not like right in, in London. Uh, because e- even though there, there's like a Grand Lodge in London or a Grand Lodge here in, in Ontario, they're completely separate entities. Like there's mm. a certain amount of uh, amity between them, but they're completely separate, uh, um, you know, c- c- completely separate organizations. And even then, uh, when it comes to Masonic bodies, the Masonic bodies themselves are separate. The only thing that Grand Lodge does is ensures that, first of all, the tools to be able to do your, your ritual is good. And also to make sure that the ritual stays the same between all the lodges to make sure it's regular. Right. Other, other than that, you know they don't um, you know, they don't meddle in other lodges' uh, affairs. Mm. One of the toughest lines to walk in the show is having a reverence for the secrets that Masons keep, and the secrets more have to do with Masonic secrets. Mm. They don't have to do with anything that you ask with the right intention and if it's about something important you know it's not necessarily the ominous secretive thing that people talk about but it is so interwoven the rites and rituals and allegories of freemasonry are so centrally important to understand if you want to learn free um, symbolism and if you really want to understand egypt um i've been very surprised that more egyptologists aren't freemasons because so much of what the egyptologists say they're still looking for is just all right there in the masonic lodge 
Well, and that was one of the things that that uh, actually drove me to Freemasonry. Believe it or not, John Anthony West uh, was, um, you know, like his his work with Mystery of the Sphinx, like way back in, in when it came out in, in uh, uh, you know 1993, was what actually got me interested in the sacred, you know, like the the more uh, esoteric side of of ancient history. And the Magic Legion came out, and I'm like, boom, okay, I'm you know I want this. Wow, good on you. Yeah, me too. Uh, basically, me too. The first show is one of the most technically horrible things that's ever been committed to film. And uh, when I did the first show, I was just a graphic designer and an animator. And I just happened to have this weird conjunction of circumstances where I just left my job. I was working for Fox. I was in the fair department right after getting switched over from the balance department at Fox. And uh, I just had this a conjunction of circumstances where I just left my job and I, you know, I'll be back in six or seven months. <laughs> Started following John around. Well, that, that, that reminds me of my own experience. That's odd. What? Hello? Yeah, no, you said you're oh, reminded of your own experience. That, well, being a graphic designer, meeting Randall, following him, basically making a movie and, and having that same, uh, apprehension looking backwards at like all the technical errors i made not knowing anything just kind of yeah it. <laughs> so i, I feel your thing <laughs> purity of heart and just a good honest interest in something will pull you through just about everything you know that's true absolutely um hey do you know david carson speaking of graphic designers i i can't say that i do he used to be the guy he used to be the most famous graphic designer in the world um i've spent my whole life as a my uh, degree is in design, and I've been a graphic designer and animator for 20 years before I became a filmmaker. And um, I love it. You know, there's not enough of us around. And the reason the world <laughs> isn't more beautiful is there's not more graphic designers in the world. Oh, good point. Well, maybe we can change that. We can get everybody uh, taking these classes with Randall and, uh, right. you know, revivifying the landscape and uh, enchanting the landscape. And if we Plant breathe... Trees. If if we breed with the women of non-graphic designers, that will shore up our numbers too. <laughs> now, the graphic designers get to breed. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm trying. I'm trying. I just got married. It'll happen. You'll, you'll have little yes. zoogers running around the place, all drinking scotch, and well, no, because that's that's bad. But you know, when they're when yeah, they're of age, anyway. when they're of age, they'll drink scotch. Yeah, you uh, may want to lay off the scotch for your your. Your sperm's sake, my friend. Uh, well. and don't sit too close to the monitor. Don't sit too close to the monitor either <laughs> if you want to be reproducing. Well, that's why my monitor's oh. about two, three feet away. Uh, guys, forever. Do yourself a favor. Hold your nuts up to the microwave, Bob. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think I'll, I think I'll pass on that. I, I'm, uh, you know, my, my wife will. <laughs> if I do that, my wife will actually kill me, and then, you know, I love her too much to her for her to want to be able to do that. It just gets complicated. You know, I've got to like dole out the stuff afterwards. My cat has to figure out how to work the home theater system. It's just, it's just bad. <laughs> um, now, just to give you guys a heads up, if you can, if, for anyone who's in here right now, I just sent out the new link to the stream because I actually had to create an entirely new stream for this show for for, for this episode. Um, and just, just tweet it out to everyone, get the word out there just so that they know that we're live. We've got 13 people in the chat right now. And those are our, you know, I know Bram's in there cause Bram is awesome. Just uh, let you have the link for the chat too. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the link for the chat. I think I'm in the right one, right? Yeah. You're, you're, yeah, you're in the right one. That's, that's the one we're in right now. We've got 15 people in there. I know, uh, I see Kevin Stevens is in there. Uh, Kevin, no, you're not the only one in here. We love you, buddy. Uh, I hope you, you enjoy the Highland Park. I got a, a glass of, tw uh, of uh, Glenn here. Cheers, buddy. Um, 
so yeah just let everyone else know that we're out here and we're we're live and we're kicking and uh, also you know send some shade rogers uh, internet's way please and thank you uh now i'm just going to double check the skype here just to make sure we've got everyone else on and uh, uh brandon you're on here as well i know you've been listening uh, quite patiently in the background i'm here guys Okay, now Brandon, you're you're relatively new to the group. I know you and I have talked over Skype with Cameron several times. I think it was like you know multi-hour you know, conversations, like you know th- we we went to like three hours just talking MMA, which I thought was awesome. And I, I thought I've, I thought like Brandon is one amazing son of a gun. I got to get him on this show. So thank you very much for coming on tonight <clears throat> and and joining in this magical Egypt experience. I appreciate you guys having me on. Now, Welcome, Brandon. Now, Brandon, well, why don't you give the the uh, listeners at home a little uh, little background into you? Uh, yeah. Well, I think uh, the relevance of having me on the show was my connection through Cameron um, and being connected to the Wim Hof method as a instructor for Wim uh, in the United States, and Clay, who is uh, working with John is really into the method and the health benefits, uh, you know, that are being displayed by the method. Um, We're in the process of doing uh, a lot of various work with with different things. Um, You know, I won't I won't speak out of turn, but basically, you know, we're we're tapping into uh, pH levels, which show great results in creating, you know, uh, healthy states of the body that can be resistant to, you know, in particular diseases. You know, and that, that's fantastic. Now, the Wim Hof method, that's the, the method where, <clears throat> just for everyone else that's out there, where you can immerse yourself in, in like freezing cold water for extended periods of time without any adverse effects to your body whatsoever. Well, right. Yeah, we don't we don't we don't want any adverse effects. We want we want all the positive effects that come with the uh, the stimulation of, you know, uh, basically it's we're working with adrenaline and we're, we're kind of in a very short uh, way to describe it. We're hacking our way into stress and then learning how to deescalate from that stress in order to kind of move from an innate sort of sympathetic um, nervous response into a parasympathetic nervous response, which creates, you know, like ultimate, it's kind of like a flow state, you know, if you want to go there. And um, we are able to, you know, kind of tap into, you know, various, uh, I, I would say high level meditative uh, brainwave states that are, um, you know, really effective, you know, in the day to day, just coping with life and, you know, and then the, the you know, there are a, a myriad of, of effects. I mean, we could go into all kinds of things about the method, you know, but, um, the method does really, uh, or it is really showing, uh, positive, uh, benefits. You know, and, and that's, that. I- Sorry, I believe that would I've actually been trying that in my shower, mm. but I can't get it very cold. <laughs> well, aren't you in Canada? 
No, no, my the water gets fucking cold. But <laughs> I just so should I start hot and then go cold? Because maybe that's my problem. Is once I get to the hot, you know, trying to get down to the cold is tough. Well, contrast in the beginning, you know, go back and forth, um, you know. But the 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 idea of what we do is we want to get into the cold and then we want to de-escalate through that. Basically, the the Wim Hof method is three pillars. It's uh, breath work, gradual exposure to the cold, and then the mindset to get you through all of it. And the the breath work is uh, the sort of the axis of the the whole methodology. I mean, what we're trying to use is um, uh, the breath to get us through the cold, the initial shock of the cold. And then once we pass through that, we can relax into the whole process and that gives us the time to to sit with the cold and to meditate and essentially um you know once we come from that experience we we want to tap into the feelings of thermogenesis which come as an after effect of the cold so if you just go back and forth between hot and cold you'll never really tap into the whole process but it's a good way to start to to uh, create a, a nervous system response so that your body sort of knows what's coming. So it's not a complete shock. But ultimately, you want to you wanna be able to go from just, say, hot to cold and finish your shower with cold. And then you want to transition just to cold and then ultimately into cold, full submersions like uh, ice baths. And that's not to say you shouldn't take hot showers because I love hot showers, but the you know ultimately the cold is just used as a uh, as a tool, you know. And you know, so if you're using it in your shower, I recommend going uh, first starting with the contrast to going back and forth between the hot and the cold, and then ultimately working towards just the cold. Now, and how okay. long do you do that between the two? <clears throat> well, um, initially, you could just start uh, with seconds, you know, 15, okay. 10, 15 seconds. And then you could work your way towards a minute. Uh, if you can work your way, you know, in the uh, WIM has a program online. And the basic idea is to work towards 10 minutes uh, in the cold shower. But if you're doing 10 minutes in the cold shower, you should be able to do ice baths. And ice baths, have a prolonged effect. So you don't have to do them every day. I choose to do them about every day, but if you if you do them a few times a week, you can get great benefits from the ice. And you know, that's everything from, you know, ultimately it's just creating energy. You know, which, you know, we could tie that into the whole Egyptian thing. Mm. Um, I, I believe that tapping into these natural systems that are latent within the body that go unknown essentially because we don't we're no longer uh you know living deeply connected to nature and if we were more connected to nature we would have to engage these systems and that's that's sort of the message of the wim hof uh you know practice is is that we want to get back to nature and uh and kind of you know tune out for a while and move into these states of theta that allow us to be more animal, <laughs> you know? So they, 
the, the practice of, of just connecting back to the breath and then essentially bringing in the cold uh, can, can act as these natural stimuluses uh, in a way that creates repetition because the cold water is always there and presents the same challenge every time you go back to it. Well, it's, it's so hard to get past that breathing, though, to not just, like, <laughs> start hyperventilating. Well, that's you know, why we hyperventilate in the practice. So the practice huh. is essentially a controlled hyperventilation in order to enter into high levels of uh, sympathetic nervous state. So we, we've been able to generate uh, levels of adrenaline that are, you know, just laying in bed that are the same as uh, a bungee jumper's first jump. And, and then <clears throat> essentially de-escalate out of that. And when you come from that state, it's uh, the, you know, basically, you know, I don't want to put it like this, but it's true. We're, we're kind of getting high on adrenaline for a minute. And then we're, uh, you know, then we're, we're riding that out. And that energy can feed you all day long. And you're doing that through hyperventilation? Uh, yeah, it's essentially wow. a hyperventilation, but it's, it's, it's more profound than just a hyperventilation okay. because it's a controlled hyperventilation. We're, sent, we're, we're basically creating a fear state so that throughout the rest of the day, you don't feel very much fear. We're kind of hacking out of fear, if that makes sense. And it, it's because stress and fear are totally related. And does that reduce your cortisol levels or something, or how does that work? Well, what was put forth at Stanford was is that, yeah, we're, we're, we're basically balancing and reducing cortisol while getting high levels of adrenaline. Hmm. Okay. So Wim has been studied at Stanford. He, there's, there've been, um, uh, studies going on. He just was recently the last couple of days studied in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, at a university uh, doing brain scans. And so they're, they're really trying to push uh, these, you know, this method, um, uh, you know, from a scientific standpoint and trying to prove everything that uh, they're saying. A friend of mine got heavily into uh, Kundalini yoga and became an instructor. And uh, at one point he was, he was doing, you know, cold showers every day. And at the time he was explaining it to me as kind of a, I guess, a bit of a detoxification type effect as well. Um, is that part of it? Well, I think that this is, I think this is a direct link to the Kundalini. You know, right. I, I've, I've done a lot of practices. I've been involved in martial arts and Qigong for uh, almost 30 years and the yoga and all, all kinds of things I've trained. And, and ultimately, I've found more internal feeling from this method in the last two years that I've been involved with it um, because of the stimulation of the cold and, and then, you know, tapping into this, this uh, what we call brown fat activation or thermogenesis. And so when people talk about, you know, the heat rising up the spine in the Kundalini, uh, this is something that becomes very apparent um, and is, is very much a reality for all of us. We all have the ability to do this and create this, uh, this feeling. Um, and it, 
is the, you know, it's the closest thing I could say to that. I mean, I would like to see something more, you know, I'm always willing to try anything mm-hmm. that, that's working in this type of a realm, you know, especially with the breath. And how, how does this uh, help towards healing? Exactly. Like, is this something uh, I know that with certain um, like, you know, whether it's it's uh, a mind over body or some people say that like adrenaline can help you to overcome certain uh, things attacking your body. Like, is this something is this along those lines? Well, it's it's just that the process itself uh, creates all kinds of various effects. So when you're doing this over breathing that we do essentially as the the basis of the whole practice, uh, what happens is we get uh, a high level of, uh, you know, we're bringing in oxygen fast. We're always basically at 100% saturation in oxygen anyway, but what happens is, is our CO2 lowers. So this lowers trigger responses that essentially uh, cause us to want to breathe. So we're, we're doing uh, like a lot of essentially basal um, constriction through this breathing practice. And what that does is it, it lowers the CO2 and in turn raises your alkalinity level and lowers your acidity level. So mm. when people talk about, you know, uh, tapping into the alkaline, like high, higher states of alkalinity, the only thing truly proven to adjust your alkalinity in your blood is your breath. And this all happens uh, in connection with uh, the vagus nerve. And essentially, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the higher levels of pH, you know, create a, a physiological state within the body that should be resistant to bacteria. So, so are you saying that if we're a poor breather, we're probably more acidic? Uh, well, it, that depends because you can be a poor breather and be an overbreather, if that makes sense. So you can breathe too much and still be an, a, a poor breather, just like you could underbreathe and be a poor breather. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the idea is to, to uh, you know, we, breathing is the key. I mean, it really is. Yeah. If you think about it, it's the key. So as I recall, you said it was the lowest hanging fruit and it's the one that most people tend to overlook and it's the one they should be going for the first step. That's right. It's, it's, it's right there for us. And that's why so many uh, athletes nowadays are really getting onto this because they recognize this as being the truth. And the, the, you know, whim uh, was genius in bringing it out to the public, but, um, the it's it, you just really can't be denied that the you know when you get in touch with your breath the sages have been saying it forever um uh you know ultimately when you get in touch with your breath uh you will you can learn to just become conscious of it and that has a very uh i think that that's very profound that's when you're conscious of your breathing you will breathe more complete and you will have to breathe less often if that makes sense. That makes sense. And I, I can uh, testify, you know, uh, Brandon was nice enough to come down and, and kind of give me the, uh, the, uh, the experiences that I'm looking forward to now, which previously terrified me, which is getting in the cold water. 
And uh, by and by, I've been doing the the cold showers. And uh, for people out there that are skittish, don't necessarily like the cold straight away. Uh, yeah, in my experience, uh, just start with it on your lower back, gradually move up and down your spine, uh, front and back. You know, you can use your hands to rub in areas that are injured, and uh, you just start tuning into your body. And uh, by and by, you just end up turning the heat totally off, and and you're uh, acclimated. And uh, now I'm I'm looking at Brandon like, well, maybe I can do what he does because this guy, you know, he gets in freezing cold water every morning. Brandon, tell him about the uh, setup you created there. I think this is pretty ingenious. My uh, we call it the poor man's cryo or the the, red, the redneck, <laughs> redneck nice <laughs> the redneck cryo chamber. I ain't uh, never gonna die. Yeah, man, no, <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm in North Carolina, man. You know. We're, <laughs> So, uh, well, I just took a deep freezer and, uh, and created a, a sort of a, a liner on the inside of it so that it allowed me to be able to uh, create really cold water and maintain it, uh, you know, without having to buy a $15,000 system, essentially. And those are, that's cheap, you know. Um, but the... Uh, the process is uh, the process is um, you know the same. Like I said, every morning the water's just there. <laughs> it's a really, really strong passive stress with repeatability, and you know, so we're able to keep the water at thirty-two degrees, and it's there every day. You know, redneck cryogenics makes it sound a lot friendlier. <laughs> you, you make it people, sound you, you make it sound like you're from one of the Carolinas if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. People might warm to it, no pun intended. <laughs> oh, but um, but um, Now, now, ladies and gentlemen, um, again, I, I'm I'm going to uh, iterate to everyone that's out there. If uh, you are listening and you're within the sound of my voice, uh, for the you know, 23 people in attendance currently at the moment. And I know that that number was a lot higher before we had the technical difficulties and the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are listening to this at home later on through iTunes, through Google play, through Stitcher, through TuneIn radio, or through the den of lore website, uh, go to den forward slash WPP. If you want to donate to the John Anthony West project via PayPal, or just Google John Anthony West Project Fundly, and you can donate by credit card. Uh, again, the links for all the perks are in the show notes. I did make sure that I did actually copy and paste them. And uh, again, this is including anything from coming on as a guest host to Den of Lore, coming on as a guest host to uh, Grimerica, and trust me, I've been a get- well, I've been on Grimerica kind of kind of before, and it was awesome. Uh, you know, uh, Darren and Graham are fantastic people. Uh, Edward Nightingale, who actually was on last week's show, is going to be on the show n- not next week, but two weeks from now. Uh, he is uh, donating a book for $144. You get a signed uh, book from Ed Nightingale, personalized for you. Uh, $250, you get the Traveler's Key, uh, John Anthony West book, the best book for Symbolist Egypt ever published. Ever published. Uh, I believe also f- uh, for five hundred dollars, uh, there is a or is it uh, Cameron? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here on this one, but uh, for five hundred dollars, you actually get a uh, uh, autographed print. It's an eight by ten 
uh, by uh, which was uh, done by a famous uh, photographer uh, for uh, two thousand or is it two thousand uh, Cameron? Uh, Cameron stepped away for Randall. We'll oh, right that's back. right. Okay, yes, he said. My mistake. And uh, see, for two, uh, actually, sorry, not two thousand. For five thousand dollars, you get a Catskills weekend with John Anthony West. Uh, again, that's like after March is done. You go up for a weekend. They're gonna put a uh, you know a cat uh, an air a seventeen foot to airstream right up next to uh, the uh, cabin in uh, in uh, Saugerties, right next to the Catskills Mountains. It's beautiful up there in the springtime. You'll love it. You'll have a great time. For $10,000, you get an exclusive dinner with John Anthony West and notable guests. This dinner was actually suggested by Graham Hancock, so you have a pretty good indication he's going to be there. And who else is going to be there? Maybe it could be Robert Bavall. Maybe it could be Robert Schock. Maybe it could be both of them. Heck, Joe Rogan could show up. Who knows? The next three to four days, Clay is going to be uh, sending the information for me uh, to me to uh, uh, get anybody else who wants to bid on this now for ten thousand dollars this is a bidding number this is kind of a placeholder if you want to throw an obscene number out there just to you know like top it up and make sure john anthony west can get his cancer treatment you know you, we we can we, we can talk about uh, the number you want the main important thing is if you're interested in that contact me send me a message in the chat uh, email me at info at denoflore.com and we'll we'll get you in the running for that but still uh, a fantastic, uh, uh, you know, cornucopia of uh, perks for those who enjoy giving. And even if you just want to be able to give, again, you've got two options to be able to do it. You've got PayPal as well as by credit card. Uh, it is in uh, the show notes. In addition, it is on your screen right now. Whether it's $5, $10, $20, $30, we have proven as a community that it all adds up. Two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, this project was at thirty-five, thirty-six thousand dollars, and it's raised fifty thousand dollars in the last two weeks alone. Twelve thousand, or actually about fifteen thousand in the last week alone. We, as a community, matter, and when one of our own needs help, we band together and we get that help for them. And this is the person who is needing this help is somebody who has given so much to us as seekers of truth and people who want to be able to know more about where we came from and why that matters. And for somebody who has given so much selflessly of himself to us, to be able to educate us, you know, it's, it, it's, it's just the right thing to do, be able to be able to give back. And if you can do that, whether it's a small amount, whether it's a large amount, I encourage you to do so and join me and all those who are involved here on the podcast today in, uh, in joining in on that giving and, and giving John Anthony West all the tools he needs to give, uh, you know, to, to kick cancer right in the uh, in the hoo-ha and uh, to, to get back being as awesome as he always has been. So uh, that is my spiel for donating. I, you know, you can donate all night and uh, you are encouraged to do so. Also, um, if you want to in, uh, email info at denoflore.com or at Sacred Geometry International, uh, uh, you know, just to claim your perk, you can do that as well. And now one thing I did want to mention is Jimmy Church did actually put out a call on last week's show. If you donate 50 bucks, he'll give you a call out on Fade to Black. And we're going to give you a call out on this show all night. So if you donate during the show, I'll know about it. Email info at denoflore.com. Tweet at me. 
uh, you know, Facebook me, whatever. I'll give you a shout out directly on the air because you are so awesome. And we at the Den of Lore have a very close knit community. I love all of our listeners. You guys are the reason that we keep doing this, and um, I am so proud to be part of uh, of 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 this uh, you know this this den, as it were. So, uh, and I'm getting fist bumps from uh, from some people here who are liking my speech. I can be on a soapbox, but at the same time, uh, let us get on to a little bit of a breathing exercise. I know that uh, we we're going to be doing this in a bit now, uh, Brandon. If you're there. Yeah, I'm here with you guys. Okay, now your brother also wanted to come on uh, on the program as well, so I'm just uh, uh, checking to see if I can I can include him. Well, he's he's sitting right here with me, so oh. we can we can talk through the same mic. Okay. How's it going? How's it going, man? How you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Your your brother and I had a, had a little bit of a laugh this afternoon because he's like, oh yeah, I'm like my brother's gonna be on, uh, you know, he's gonna be on the show with me. I'm like, oh that's great. I go search you on Facebook. I'm like, oh we're friends. Okay, <laughs> that's that's uh, cool. I know who you are. That's fantastic. Yeah, we all run in the same circles, you know. Uh, it's a small world. The um, sacred geometry, you know, mystical, scientific, alternative podcasting world. So you know. I'm I'm glad that we're already connected. Wonderful. Now, uh, after this breathing exercise, we are going to get started with uh, uh, the uh, uh, the stream. Uh, I know that we started a little bit late this morning, so I do appreciate everyone who is still tuning in. And uh, I know that Duncan Trussell is, uh, Randall is uh, going to be joining us shortly, and I know Duncan will be joining us shortly as well. So, um, if you gentlemen would care to describe this breathing exercise and how to be able to uh, pull it off. Okay, so are we all, we're all doing this together? <laughs> um, yes. I'm always down for some heavy breathing, for sure. <laughs> Especially <laughs> with a bunch of dudes. <laughs> I mean, I'm just guessing if somebody tunes in at this point and we're all going here breathing, you know, so I'm going to drop back and I'll coach, I'll coach us through the breathing exercise. So you guys will be do- doing the breathing and I'll be doing the coaching. Um, but what I thought would be cool uh, to do for this particular podcast um, is to introduce kind of a, a really heavy breathing, sort of hypoxic breathing state, if you will, um, in the hopes to create a little endogenous DMT. Um, because, nice. yeah, so we call this breath practice essentially the DMT breath practice. Uh, you know, there's a uh, There was a study that was put out uh, this year, uh, I think it was sometime in September, uh, that essentially uh, postulated that uh, that hypoxic stress um, uh, created uh, endogenous DMT, or endogenous DMT was created in the brain to uh, alleviate uh, hypoxic stress uh, and to keep, uh, you know, brain insult from happening. So... You know, let's just hope that it works, because <laughs> I'm always <laughs> down for a free dose of DMT. So, um, so basically, the idea is is that we're going to do uh, hyperventilation. So we all want to be safe first. So I will uh, go over just a little safety guideline, which essentially is don't stand up <laughs> and don't be anywhere where you can fall and hit your face on anything. This practice truly done, like when I do this with groups of people, we always have people pass out, always. 
and people go into all kinds of crazy states because of this practice. We get laughers and criers and all kinds of stuff. Um, this stuff is legit. It really brings it out of you. And ultimately, you just don't want to fall and get hurt. Um, I, I ripped my bathroom sink off the wall <laughs> with doing this practice. So it, it's legit. It, it will knock you down. Um, so we have to be careful. So I'll explain it. It's pretty simple. We're going to breathe as fast as we can in and out through the mouth to start. And we're going to well, we're going to build up into it a little bit, actually. So we're going to build up into a fast state. Let's say we have three levels. We're going to start with uh, a moderate pace, kind of, um, you want to think like a full inhale in, and then just letting go of the breath. So we keep some residual oxygen in the lungs. So it's like... <sighs> Okay, so that's where we're going to start. And then we're going to get into a level two, and I'll tell everybody. So when we move into level two, same kind of process in and out through the mouth, okay, because we, we want to tap into these panic states. So in and out through the mouth kind of helps us to tap right into the reptilian brain. And so when we go into the level two, we'll be more like, okay. And then finally, we'll move into level three. We won't stay here for very long, but we're going to go as fast as we can. Okay. And when we move into level three, um, we, we want to, we're going to end kind of here. And we're going to end with a big inhale in and a hold. Okay. And this is where we can pass out. So if you have ep epilepsy or heart problems, don't do this. Okay. So just uh, lay back and listen to us <clears throat> breathe. If you, um, you know, are, if you feel safe, you know, uh, you can't get me because I'm, 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 I'm online, so I'll cut out quick. <laughs> uh, but everybody, everybody take care. This, this practice will uh, give you really good results as far as feelings are concerned. So after we take that big inhale in, we're going to hold the breath in and then for about 10 seconds. And you want to kind of squeeze your abdomen. Okay, and kind of think, just kind of think, pressing up, bring everything up, and then we're gonna relax the abdomen, and then after we relax the abdomen, we're gonna breathe out. And if you guys want to do two rounds, we can do two rounds, and we can do this pretty quick. Okay. Now, just just before we begin, um, if any, if I pass out, and there's a, always a chance I can, <laughs> just just dial nine and one, and when you hear. You know, dial one again and then send it to my house, and uh, I'll just put my I'll put my uh, my. So, so my address is in the chat. Get, so just where we get the good results again is, and we'll do it. We'll say the last couple of breaths here, uh, as we're going really fast, we'll actually slow down. Let's say the last two or three breaths will slow down a little bit, so that we can take a a. a a good we can make a good exhale then take a good deep inhale in and when we hold that inhale again brace yourself in case anybody thinks they you know might go out and and then relax the body and then breathe out okay and then we'll start again everybody together yep yep oh yeah Ooh, yep okay so let's start with that level one breathing we're gonna do you know maybe 20 20 reps or so okay, okay. So the level one is like this. Think fully in, let go. Fully in, let go. 
as you're breathing, as you're breathing, you want to think breathing from the belly all the way up to the head. Big breaths, full breaths in. Okay, let's move into level two. A little faster now. So now we're going. Big breaths. Let's take it up to level three, fast as we can go. This is by far the sexiest podcast I've ever been involved with. Fast as you can go, fast as you can go. So, and three, two, one big breath in, hold it, squeeze everything up, squeeze, kegel, and then relax the body and let it go. Big hit. Jesus. All right, let's do it again. One more time. Last time. Ready? Start on round one. We're going to move a little faster this time. That's right. Doing this with the CO2 down, alkalinity up. Full breaths in, let go. Full breaths in, let go. Okay, second round, faster. Beautiful. Okay. Last round. Fast as we can go. Okay, let's be ready. And now three, two, One, breathe out, breathe in, get breath in, squeeze, squeeze, anaconda squeeze, relax the belly, breathe out, nice, nice.
Nice. I wish I could hug you all right now. That's what I generally <laughs> do after these types of things. Uh, I, I think I shouldn't have had that scotch. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty high. Like my my entire body is like literally I could feel if I close my eyes. There is this this intense like in outward like pulsating energy. Yeah, I'm like I'm this, buzzing. This A palpable buzz. I haven't felt this good since my first rave. Woo. <laughs> and oh man like you know from, from like the top of your head and uh, like I, i've been having a couple of glasses of scotch since we before we started the show and you know like maybe one or two since we uh we uh <laughs> had the technical difficulties but uh <laughs> like there there's a certain amount of peace and calm and and uh serenity that i feel there's also yeah. like a taste or a smell inside it's me as well does that make sense I, I smell 12-year Glenfiddich. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, look, no, nothing is, nothing is out of the ordinary. You know, it's all just us. So what we do is we start, you know, uh, this process was developed through uh, feeling, through uh, really sensing his way through fear. And... You know, it's a it's an unbelievable, it's a beautiful, and I hate to call it a hack, but essentially it's what it is because it's a shortcut. It's a way for us to tap into some stuff. And then what we do is we we work it kind of backwards. We work the technique into the feeling. So what's real important is to start to develop how you feel around the technique. Um, and you know, when we do this process, um, we work. We work. It's a very it's a very malleable process. We can work it in lots of different ways. Um, this is just one little, uh, you know, avenue with the breath practice. So there's lots of different training that we can do with it. But essentially, it revolves around this kind of high pace, uh, adrenaline uh, creating process. And then we want to move into, you know, giving ourselves uh, some kind of, of battleground, a test, if you will, a sparring component to it and that is the cold water um you know other things can suffice but the cold is something that just about anybody can approach you know brandon yes sir brent so how many rounds of this type of breath work would you do before you get into the ice every morning well actually man i actually do my breath work after the ice that's when i prefer it. Or, or i do it separate totally separate from the ice so i don't usually do a lot of breath work before the ice i like to challenge myself to just go right to the water and get right in without much uh um preparation if that makes sense a little bit of mindset preparation but more just i want to get in and have to deal and then when i get out i use the breath as a tool to get myself warm and that's the beauty of the breath. We can create all kinds of heat internally. And we have this system in us to be able to generate tremendous amounts of heat. And this has been demonstrated uh, by the, you know, uh, famously by the Tibetan monks. Uh, Wim has also obviously demonstrated this over two hours in the ice without any loss of core body temperature. Actually raising his core body temperature an hour in. Um, showing direct connection into the autonomic nervous system. So, you know, we, we have the ability to do this and to, to really penetrate deep into uh, nature, you know, using the breath. Fantastic. 
uh, Randall is looking at some really incredible slides from Egypt as you're describing this, and the background is like an icy blue, and it's got Osiris sitting on his his uh, lunar bark. Uh, so it's kind of like I'm already seeing the potential here for mixing this media, and well, uh, I imagine a lot of these secrets will be unveiled to us as we pursue these practices because you know studying up for the podcast, reading uh, Shwali Delubich is uh, the Temple in Man, you know basically all of the uh, energetic pathways are mapped out in these temples. Absolutely. And I'm interested to talk to, to Randall about the acacia bush and, and how it relates to DMT and uh, Egypt. Randall's here. Live. Uh, I know he's uh, finishing up a little food here. But, uh... <laughs> I'm here. Hey, Randall, I've got a new ISO for you, too, when you start that, Cameron. Well, welcome, brother. Good, 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 uh, good to hear your voice again. Is that good Michael? evening, Randall? I I hear Darren. I hear hey. Michael. Who else? Uh, this is uh, Chris George Zuger of Den of Lore. Hello, Chris. How you Adam Loyola, friends to know. Well, I guess we're hey, all Adam. Here, What's up? And uh, Chance Chance Gardner here from Magical Egypt. Well, hello, Chance. Hey, man. We somehow wrangled Chance onto the show through. Somehow, you know, nefarious means it might might have some, might, might have something to do with the fact that he's absolutely awesome, and uh, he was free. <laughs> so, uh, Randall, how's the flu flu treating you? I hope you're feeling better. Oh yeah, I'm better. Good. I, I'm gonna send you yeah. some. I'm gonna send you some cold effects. It's like a Canadian cure all, boosts the immune system. It's available here. I'm gonna send it down with uh, down to you in case it happens Beautiful. again. Yeah, sounds good, man. Yeah, it was going oh, around. I'll, for, send, um... I'll send you some proper medicine. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh. Some, some real medicine <laughs> it's medicinal okay. it's medicinal <laughs> oh. okay now i know that uh, for the the 20 we, we've got quite a few people in the chat room now and i know that we've got our listeners who um and uh, i just want to give a shout out to uh, Om- omnicron omnicron who's uh and kevin and uh you, you guys have been absolute uh, wonderful for hanging on and uh, Bram, yes, we're 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 rocking on. Um, you know, we're getting on to that point where we should be starting the show. But I want to make sure Randall's uh, uh, good to go and he's comfortable. And uh, uh, have you finished your dinner? Or you, you still have some some more. Uh, let's there? see. It looks like there's one more bite here, so I'm going <laughs> to go ahead. And... Take your time, brother. I'll get that uh, taken care of here directly. Never interrupt him a, a, a Freemason at festive unless it's for the uh, to- the uh, junior warden's toast. That's right. Uh-huh. I think I'm good to go. Actually, it's pretty warm in here, so I am going to get a little bit more comfortable, and then I'll be good to go. Thank so speaking of the chat room, Kevin, I was able to uh, to sample that for you. Here it is now. Perfect. That'll be a new jingle for my show now. <laughs> I, I've got the entire time. I'm probably gonna like make some new techno track out of that. I've I, I've been taking the uh, uh, the dead mouse learn how to produce on on masterclass. So I'm I'm, I'm hoping to put those uh, skills to good use for a new intro track that I've made myself. It's gonna be my Perfect. new ringtone. I'll send you this ISO. Uh, that's yeah. Send that to me too, Darren. <laughs> nice. So I'm uh, first of all, I'm going to test this out here, and I'm going to share my screen with everyone just to make sure everyone can see it. 
because the last time we tried this with like three videos and a share screen, my uh, uh, and Rogers, yeah, Roger, fuck, Roger, fuck Rogers Internet. <laughs> and like I, you know, what, Bell laid me off twice. Bell's working. Like that's the difference. So uh, let me see here. Uh, has, can it, can everyone see the uh, the share screen? Yes, yes, I can. Yep. Okay, wonderful. I'm just gonna test. Am it. I looking at a pillar in Egypt? You were looking at you were looking at the intro to a video that we have a, the man who produced the video on the show, and I can't. I'm kind of geeking out a little bit at the moment, but uh, give me a second. Good to go. Which episode is this that we're going to watch? Uh, we're going to be watching episode one. Like we can pretty much watch as many episodes as we want. I know we were looking at about two or three. Um, you know, I, I was, I was personally prepared to watch all of them. I may still watch all of them after everyone else goes off the air. Cause that's the way that I roll. <laughs> nice. Um, but uh, the episodes that we'll be watching tonight, uh, let's see, show all windows and yeah, there we go. So, uh, we're going to be looking at the invisible science and the, the three that we're definitely going to watch the invisible science, the old kingdom and, uh, the still older kingdom and uh, the Temple of Man, which is, ep uh, so part one, part two, and part four. And the reason we're watching Temple of Man is because uh, uh, myself and Cameron uh, tried to burn through the Temple in Man from uh, Schwarzenegger de Lubix today, and we, we got to stretch that muscle, because <laughs> that's, that's an awesome read. Uh, check it out on Kindle. Uh, it, you know, f fantastic understanding of how the Temple at Luxor was actually constructed over centuries. Uh you know, it, oh my god, su such a riveting read. So if everyone can see my book, I'm going to switch over to the Magical Egypt view. And uh, again, also don't forget, uh, pre-order Magical Egypt 2 out in the next 30 or so days at MagicalEgypt.com, uh, which you you can see on the graphic to the, uh, to the, the right-hand side. So uh, if everyone is ready, I can start the video. And can everyone hear the audio fine? Yes. Sounds good to me. Wonderbar. I love this intro. I watch it like about 50 times this week alone. I think Duncan's ready. Bring him on. I should be able to do that for my end, eh? Well, let me just pause her then. Now, Chance, who did you have narrate the movie? Because, like, that is one of the most serene voices I've ever heard. Where did you find the guy? It isn't he awesome? That's Derek Partridge. Um, he's a Brit, obviously. Derek was the voice of BBC Finance from like the 60s through the 80s. Here's the coolest thing about Derek. He was one of the bad guys on the original Star Trek episode. Nice. He was uh, the bad guy in Plato's Children where Captain Kirk did the world's first interracial kiss on television, apparently. Brilliant. That is absolutely Yeah, I just awesome. talked to Derek. I just talked to Derek a few minutes ago. He's the, you know, proudly the voice of the new show. Um, nice. It's amazing that everyone's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? In the, I, I can't wait to hear this. Like, I'm going to put in my pre-order, like, right now. 
while while we're talking. Can I just pre-order it right now? Yeah. Yeah. Go go to magicalegypt.com. And on, is it on DVD there. or will it be digital? It's going to be digital. Uh, it's going to be digital, oh, and yes. it's going to be both eventually. But um, it's a digital download right now. Will you, will you be able to get it um, on demand from any of uh, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or anything like that, or? We're trying to get to Netflix. The biggest thing is I'm just trying to get the thing done right now. Um, totally. But um, we're, we're trying to um, get Netflix interested. Uh, you know, it's a catch-22 because until you have something to show, it's hard to get a meeting. And um, so we're trying to do that in advance. But the show's coming together so fast and so furiously that, um, you know, once I do that, uh, I'll start worrying about some of the other stuff. Understood. Okay, and uh, 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 Darren, how how are we doing with Duncan? With uh, Duncan, so it looks like if I answer it, uh, well, it's, it's going to put you guys on hold. Uh, send me his. Uh, uh, you you can just add him to using the plus button, can't you? No, it says it'll put my call on hold. Okay, uh, can you send me his uh, his uh, Skype via uh, the chat here, and I'll uh, I'll add him. His uh, Skype ID is Duncan is a witch, all one word. Duncan. Okay. I'm pretty sure there's only going to be one of those. Yep. And he floats. He floats on water. Is he a duck? <laughs> Quack. You know, th- speaking of like cult shows, apparently they're supposed to make a follow up to Spaceballs. Which I think is wow, just, that would be awesome. Yeah, like I'm, I'm waiting for that because I, I know the reason that I actually married my wife. Well, one of the reasons I married my wife, and one of the many, many reasons because she's wonderful and listens to the show, is because she was a, uh, a Holy Grail fanatic, and many of the people we have on the show are Holy Grail fanatics. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> now I'm just gonna I've get... still never seen that. <clears throat> oh my god. Uh, now, uh, well, Jack, now I've now I've seen me to watch with Graham. Graham wants me to watch it with him now. Uh, I think I seen like part of one of them a long time ago, and it just you know it just wasn't my thing. You know, you, you I could probably I get know. into it more now. You brought them to. They don't hold up very well. It's very time bound. It might not work if you didn't see it originally. I met Eric Idle once. He was a dick to me. He was such a dick to me. Okay, Duncan is on his way in. Hello. Nice. Duncan, How's it you... going, you guys? Oh, my goodness. Mr. Greetings. Trussell, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. I can't see you, though. Is this not video, or it, what is this? It, it's not video. Apparently, uh, our Canadian internet is a little bit, uh, uh, you know, a little bit on the uh, sketchy side, unfortunately. I have to go with No the... problem, man. I love no video. That's fantastic. Wonderful. So, um, yeah. We're, Eastern we're... Canadian internet sucks. Ah. Uh. That's a bummer, man. That's a real bummer. We need fast connections these days. Well, you know, we are still we're still working on it. At least I've got two internet connections in the house, so that that's kind of a fast good thing. Fast connections. That is awesome. Thanks. <laughs> so we just uh, queued up uh, Magical Egypt, and we've got uh, uh, we've got a couple people in in the chat room already, and we're ready to get going. So, oh, let me. Will you? Is there a tweet up about this? And I'll tweet it. No, go, well, th- there was a tweet, and then uh, my internet connection decided to be uh, you know throttly, and then I went to my other net internet connection. So go go tweet away. I'll. I'll is this uh, on YouTube? What's the link? 
Render. Uh, Duncan Trussell. Let uh, me see here. I'm on. Um, okay. Hold on a second. I want to try to find a link to this sucker. Okay. It's, so you guys are streaming this on YouTube? Yes, we are. And actually, I just tweeted you the link for my own, uh, for my own uh, uh, Twitter. Okay. I got it. I'm on. Okay, cool. Hang on. I'll just tweet this thing. Hold on a second here. Okay. And let's just tweet this. What's the name of this show? Magical. What? It's a Den of Lore, the, the John Anthony West Project Cancer Fight Companion. Okay, got it. And his um yeah, an acronym. <laughs> jaw, jaw cancer jaw cfc magical what, is this is this raising money for him yeah totally man we've been doing it for two weeks i'm actually going to be raising money from from the show from now until the end of march awesome yeah so, what's our uh, totals up for on that uh you know like i know like right now uh we were sitting at the beginning of the show at around uh, 8300 or 83000 we're up to about 83846 beautiful that's well beautiful. Yeah. Okay. I'm tweeting now. <clears throat> okay, got it. Okay, cool. Tweeted. Ready to go. Are we already going? Yeah, well, we, we've been on for for about, uh, like, we, we've been doing some breathing exercises for the last bit, so I'm just going <laughs> to... Can you can you see my, my uh, screen share? Let me see here. Yeah, I see. Hold on one second here. Okay, yeah. I mean, I just see kind of like a blurry screen. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I see that. There we go. Wow, this could be like a weird ink <laughs> experiment where everyone describes what they see in the picture. That's a radish, man. Okay, there we go. Cabbage, I think. It's like okay. Cabbage. Yeah, cabbage. Is this the very first one? This is the first one. So when did this come out then, Chase? This would have been 20, 20 years ago? It's about 17 years ago, yeah. I don't whenever 9-11 was on the... Uh, uh, 2001? Yeah, that's about right. There it is. I was at Fox at the time when Mike Darnell had just done the cop show, that new reality show at the time, and nobody used tripods anymore. It was all handheld. And um, so I thought that was very liberating that you could do a show without a tripod. And then none of the networks wanted it because I didn't use a tripod. Two different stories told about the huh. same land. Every single time two that intro gets me. Histories. Two different histories. Almost as if there were two Egypts. This ancient land has always partaken of a duel. Like, I, I've probably seen this as many times as Joe has. <laughs> the face of Egypt is known the world over. Look at that. In every the nightmare of the pharaoh. Tourists. Festing <laughs> <laughs> your beautiful pyramid. A bunch of Egypt farting tourists. <laughs> Look at a funny art on his 4,000 years ago, they were kings. It's like, now it's like, man, that guy's got a fucking Kodak. Like, that is... Yeah. So depressing. The they, they can't appreciate. <laughs> they can't. Magical ability from an even earlier account. Uh, too much fluoride. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> it is the account of the Egyptians themselves. 
Where did this originally air? This alternate history is echoed by This has always been a streaming. I don't know if anybody's ever showed this. I, maybe the History Channel a long time ago. It had some activity right at the beginning, but it's always been just a YouTube phenomena. Was it just me or did that person a few frames back look like an old man? Stories provides oh, a unique window. The chariot. Chinese. Sorry, guys. In this series, we will take a look at the shadowy history and magical practices of this other Egypt. Egypt is the keeper of secrets. This we've been just looking at Abu Simbel, which is the temple that had to get moved when they built the big the dam there at Aswan. The and that was moved so to they, that was moved to New York, wasn't it? Uh, not quite <laughs> that far. <laughs> Las Vegas. That was Cleopatra's needle. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, Randall, it's it interesting you mentioned that because that's what gave me the Egypt bug when I was a kid. My parents had all these old National Geographics, and the October '63 National wow. Geographic was on the uh, the building of the of the Anwar Dam and all of this. Wow. For a symbolist tour of magical Egypt, we would explore not only the sacred sites but the ancient teachings that lie concealed there. Of course, you know, the Aswan Dam happens to be right on the tropic, right on, dead on, the Tropic of Cancer. Interesting. Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, see when, the ancient uh, mysteries through that's where you want to get baptized, lens. Brandon. <laughs> a You're getting baptized. A lost magic to life and returns to humanity <laughs> that teaches this, magic of This is going to be the best show ever with those sound effects. <laughs> if, if I do those sound effects, everyone's voice the gets fucked up. <laughs> but he can do it himself. <laughs> you gotta get one of these things, man. The, the temple that they moved there that was into the, the material the universe. The Philae Temple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. On the island. Yeah, that was. Did ancient Egypt uh, inherit its mysterious abilities to, from an even yeah. older culture? Really, uh, lost to history well, and forgotten. Very by the unique artwork world. that's completely different than anything else you see in Egypt. Uh, particularly, there's a shrine there to um, Sekhmet. Um, and there. I'll see if I can post some of the pictures in the thread. I was sharing a couple little ones I have when I was in Egypt that were on my desktop, but. Um, uh, yeah, just a really incredible, strange, dwarfish-looking, impish-type figures that you don't see in any of the other. Right. Man, this intro gets me every fucking time. <laughs> every fucking time! <laughs> Good on ya. Good on ya. Now, the interesting thing, like, whenever you see, like, Egyptian statues, everyone says it's like, Although oh, it's, uh, civilization is yeah, like, oh, they're, they're symmetrical. The no, Egyptians always made... Culture. The, the statue imperfections purposely. Yeah, yeah like it, they were asymmetrical the specifically because of uh, of their knowledge of the human body. A mysterious land of riddles whose secrets were considered the highest prize to some of the greatest minds in history. Egypt was known to the ancient world as a repository of high knowledge and magical practices. These universal secrets were contained and kept alive in the mystery schools. The teachings and magical ability they imparted were held in the highest secrecy and reverence. So those are the mystery Entrance schools that turn into the Masons, Randall? Was tightly restricted. Well, nobody can they draw a direct historical connection between them, but there certainly is an implied connection. <clears throat> you know, that's 
uh, a work of historical research that still needs to be done is tying together the various mystery schools that emerged in, in different cultures, you know, since, since old kingdom times. Yeah, we, we can we, trace the secret. We can trace modern Freemasonry historically or, pretty or much back to the and were held guilds to contain of the master builders the during the Middle Ages that built the cathedrals, and really not much farther than that. Great magic. However, there were certainly orders in the past in Greece, the Dionysian artificers, um, the Mithraists, and others that had rituals and symbols that were almost identical to modern Freemasonry. Aristotle, hmm. Galileo. Copernicus, so what? Why, why, why the simul? Why the similarity? Did they? Uh, did the Masons just sort of lift the those rituals, or is the implication that the Masons have their roots in some kind of deeper secret? Yeah, I mean that that's kind of the question right there. Is there a direct historical continuity between these groups, or was there in effect a revival? I think it was probably a combination of both. Um, right on, brother. Generated form. Seems to be a, a, a sort of a common language of symbolism that ties all of these, you know, these uh, bodies of information and knowledge together. We call the mysteries. Um, you know, the Kabirai, the um, the Martinists, the Mithraists, the Gnostics. The list goes on, and while they're not identical, they're very similar. Lots, so many parallels that you realize that it, they may be in a sense, distinct expressions of one common stream of knowledge. And uh, uh, from my research, I've always been able to find that that common stream is about, you know, being able to build or manifest something, whether it's from the divine, whether it's from, you know, whatever higher power is out there. Satan, it's from Satan. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll say hi to our next Illuminati uh, pancake breakfast slash virgin sacrifice. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll see you in Egypt, brother. Wouldn't <laughs> surprise me these fucking days. Oh, there was the Keplerian nested solids we just saw. Wow. Yep. And, uh... Yeah, this was, uh, John Anthony West is going on, like, uh, uh you know, uh, Isaac Newton studied this shit more than he did yeah. the stuff that we actually know him for. Well, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. I, and it's like amazing people think of Newton as a square. They say it's like he had mercury in his hair and chests filled with maps of the Temple of Solomon and sacred geometry. It's, he was a lunatic. In its ancestral form, in the best way possible, you know, an alchemy. He was given over to the moon. He was a lunatic. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Just looking, just seeing. Yeah, God. More scientists should be mystics. The term mystery schools refers not. Yeah, to exactly. I mean, did you actually did you read that article from the guy, the Large Hadron Collider, who said that they disproved ghosts? The temples, <laughs> what? what? Really? Yeah, he said. You know, he's like, well, you know, it's like he said the idea is like they're detecting energy at such like tiny quantum minute levels, and that there, if there's some external consciousness or energy system. Then they would have picked it up by now. That's ridiculous, because they're, they're like, I should be able to measure spirit. 
Oh yeah, that's I've got to look into that because I I didn't know about that, but that's an interesting. You know, you, the uh, the guys at uh, Ottawa Paranormal Research Investigations would have uh, would definitely have some issue with that. Again and again. Yeah, that's. I mean, you know, scientists are always trying to like say that something isn't there because they don't currently have the means to quantify it. But yeah, I don't buy it, but I want to read it. Fuck, they built yeah, a thing cool. to find the Higgs boson. They can't even find that shit. What the fuck? Well, truth is only as good as your yardstick. Vast accumulation of knowledge. Oh, we just saw the blasted tower. Yep. It's always been my firm belief that before you should get you get a PhD, you need to go eat a couple of peyote buns and sit in the desert. Amen. I've been promoting that idea for years now. You should have to. You should have to eat mushrooms to graduate high school too. Neil deGrasse Tyson, where you at? Neil deGrasse, where you at, son? Sure. Well, brother, I'll, I'll come. I'll, I'll come down to to visit you in Atlanta. We'll have some fun. Oh, yes, Shit. sir. <laughs> well, if things go if things go uh, according to plan, I should be out in the desert in May. Okay. Which Wait, desert? Uh, mostly the, the Sonoran Desert. But you, you never tell me shit. I always find out last. Can't believe this. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just fucking with you, man. But I'm just like, damn. Duncan Trussell knows before I do. Great. No, you're finding out at the same time. It's the same moment. You're finding out. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, you've heard of the Chacoan culture. Yes, of course. Yeah, sure. The Chacoans. They were. Uh, they occupied the San Juan Basin of New Mexico, and they built an infrastructure. And the infrastructure is essentially geometric and astronomic. And archaeologists have just barely begun to discern the outlines of this thing. And it apparently covered over 10,000 square miles. Are you talking about the one that it's kind of like a half circle? It's either New Mexico or Arizona. I can't remember right off the bat. Mexico, that's in Chaco Canyon. Yes, okay. The Egyptians, yes. Ancient and modern. Wait, what are, the, are these? Are these are ge what do they call those? Geoglyphs? Is there, or what are they called? Um, petroglyphs. Petroglyphs. Petroglyphs, and, petroglyphs and petrogram. What's the difference? Um, well, one is more of a... One's more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> a petrogram is like a gram. Uh, it's in just an, an image. A petroglyph. From abuse at the hands of the question, what public. is the exact difference? Mystery schools went into uh, I've always loved them together. So I don't know if there is a fine. This is where we all become part of Randall's ongoing experiments. I'm okay with that. This is gladly. Oh, right. We're creating this kind of a tentacled creature that can reach out there and enlist people to become philosophers, scientists, and learn the criteria and Add all the other weird stuff they're into, and I mean, I'm sorry, man, but I and I don't want to just like say, well, it's aliens. But when I see those things and I think about the amount of time it would take to build one of those and the reasoning behind it, it always strikes me that that that's got to be some some attempt to communicate with something. I mean, they look like runways. They look like you know they're identifying specific places you know using symbols to tell whoever's flying over what type of people live there i don't know the i always of the mystery seems like aliens to, to history Duncan, there's some really weird stuff about that there's some sites in egypt that point to a star and then they tell you how far away the star is 
And when NASA does it, they say that star is 240 years away, plus or minus five light years. You know, there's a standard of deviation. On the ground planes, they show the exact distance to these stars. Um, it's a very dicey thing, and a lot of people get mad at you if you just say aliens. But there are so many things that there's literally no way to know if you're trapped on Earth. There's no way to know the actual distance to right, stars. Right. That's what it seems like. It seems like... Somebody came, came left, and maybe they they were going to come back, and something happened. You know, they didn't make it back. It's one of the things that we're exploring in the new show. It's a very contentious subject, but there's some specific issues with brain science. There's some things about brain science, the endocrine system, and schematics of consciousness that there's just no way that people back then should have known. And so it's a serious question. They <laughs> left because we got smashed by a big fucking rock. Yeah, right. The yeah. cryptic message from the past comes to life. But, you know, one of the things that I noticed a lot when I was in Egypt was I really get the sense of what, uh, what Bram has been talking about, too, for a long time, which is that there's, you know, there's a level of the what you see the there where you're like, okay, I can see this, this makes sense, I can see how people built this, science. some of it may have really, taken a long really time, but you look at the history and the dynasties, a lot of it adds up, the original unified um, you know, of I traveled with an open-minded Egyptologist who was cool, and I put one of the original there. guides um, it you know, most of the, the guys have uh, like such four numbers on their IDs, chemistry, physical science, and his number was 25. Medicine, so astronomy, this guy had been around for a while, and, you know, music, uh, got and connected with them. And, but, you the know, then you get to the Great Pyramid, and you're just looking at something completely Hey, can you pause that, please? Chris, go back about five, ten seconds where I had that those bullet points. Sorry, I'm not trying to talk over you, Randy. My bad, brother. I'm just... uh. I was having a hard time hearing most of what you're saying also. So would you mind kind of re refreshing? Yeah, well, I was just saying, you know, a lot of the things you encounter, like, say, at Luxor, or, you know, I traveled all down the Nile. We went to sites all over Egypt, and I uh, really was fortunate through this friend to get access to, you know, we went on to some dig sites where they were just uncovering things. And um, there's unbelievable you know, artwork and statues and, but, you know, and I went to the quarry where the stones were taken from just 600 miles away from the Great Pyramid, you know, and they hand you these rocks. And uh, I actually have some videos I can post in the thread later um, where, you know, they say that they took these rocks in their hands and they just bashed these rocks out of the quarry using a harder rock to bash the other rocks <clears throat> out. That's where the largest obelisk that was never completed is. Um, yeah, and then you get there to the Great Pyramid. Uh, you know, another amazing experience was that uh, I was able to have about 30 minutes in the Great Pyramid alone while I was with a friend of mine. And, um, you know, we were talking about the breath earlier. And for me, a big connection with that is also sound and resonance and, and the you know, is ultimately being a drive for something. And w the sound that I heard, I was making sounds in there. You know, I'm very into making all kinds of weird noises. I'm always doing it. I've always been into sound. And, you know, anybody who knows about our work and Vortex Mathematics and all that, Marco Roden, you know, we're always talking about these sounds and these names of, you know, mystical names and sounds that you can create to affect your brain. But 
no doubt in my mind being inside the pyramid that it was a resonance chamber of some sort. And I was making sounds that if I were making it here, it would be barely audible. And there was a guy outside going, I could hear all of that, like, boom. Wow. You know, um, and it was just absolutely, you know, something unique. And when you're looking, you know, uh, my brother has a lot more experience in stonemasonry, but I've done a little bit and, and worked some jobs with him. And, you know, when you're looking at, and I know Randall has a lot of experience in that area, but when you're looking at those uh, those stones, you know, and the best explanation that they have is that, uh, you know, which is the only one backed up by any hieroglyphics, is that they were sliding them on sleds, pouring oil in that, front of them. Yeah, right, that's, yeah. The, 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 this you isn't know. Charlton Heston, like, you know, bullshit going on here. This this is, like, they, they did something, whether it was through water or they had some type of very ingenious way of moving the rocks to be able to do it, but it wasn't just sleds and oil. Listen, I, I'm just going to throw one thing in here. I love me some aliens, and I have spent years and years and years on that subject, but when it comes to this, man, I think the biggest mind blower is if it isn't aliens. And <laughs> it's like, cool. how <laughs> the fuck did these guys That's do really this? Because cool. I've looked into all the various explanations on how they did it, and nothing ever really... Yeah, I, I'm not convinced on anything. So it's just, I, I love aliens, but I think that we did this, and I don't know how we did it, and that just blows my mind. I'll tell well, you, anybody, dismal, I'll tell you I'll, a dismal thing my friend said when I was running that whole aliens bullshit by him, and he's like, <laughs> "You want to know why the pyramid is on a dollar bill?" He's like, "Because the pyramid represents slavery." And you want to know how they built the pyramids with slaves, lots and lots and lots of slaves. And they put that son of a bitch on the dollar bill because that's what we all are to them. You know, just like the continuation of the great work is now again, this is my a very depressed. Fuck. I got brothers who say that shit. Dismal friend. One of mine, brother who says that shit. The continuation of the great work. We like to believe that, or I like to believe the secret societies work in the shadows not for evil but for good that there's this repository of information that's so potent it gets released through these symbols uh and so that people who are ready for the download can get it but the people who aren't ready for the download don't get it and the idea is that there's people who are working on this massive project to make the world an incredible place that's my secret dream the conspiracy but my half friend is called western <laughs> democracy you're welcome <clears throat> yeah, Western democracy. Well, yeah, but the idea is like, no, that's not it at all. There's an ancient art of enslaving people. The, the Egyptians were really good at it. They're good well, at everyone taking was. slaves, and that's what we're just the evolution of Fuck. slavery. You're talking Even the Romans, the Sumerians, the fucking like the the Chinese. Every single major civilization out there, even the Americans pre Civil War, every single one built the back off of their civilization off of slaves. That That's is already our not the Indians, motherfucker. Oh no, no, no! But even, you, you, you motherfuckers, even hang out in the woods, communing with God. Even with massive manpower, I get that, and I certainly believe a lot of a lot of slaves were involved in, in erecting these edifices. But still, the motherfucking geometry and getting it so perfect, and then when you go down to like Peru or something, and they've taken large slices of stone straight out of the side of a wall or of a mountain, it's like hundreds if not thousands of feet up what i'm saying is the 
how they did this is what still blows my mind. And, and also, you know what? Maybe it was aliens. I don't know who did it. No, fuck but it. Wasn't that's aliens. What, it wasn't aliens. No that's what hell. gives me a rush. No it, yeah, well, it is a rush. And, and not just how, but why. Like when I consider true. like, for example, today, I was like, you know what, man? I'm going to go to the gym. And I sure didn't do that because I'm lazy. <laughs> like to get, just to get on a train and go to the gym to exercise uh, for me is like an insane feat right now. But to imagine ha- in those days having the impetus, the motivation to cut these slices of stone out of quarries to to place them in these incredible patterns which are even now mysterious to us that the the impetus behind it the reason for it it's got to be more than just oh i'm going to build a monument to my greatness (laughs) no fucking way man there was another reason they were doing that stuff i think that's the magnetic attraction of um of, of egypt and the pyramids is is why, why in the name of God, someone woke up one morning and was like, you know what, let's build a, we should build a pyramid. Let's fucking build a massive pyramid in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of, well, I guess it wasn't the <laughs> desert at the time, but to, to, uh, to do that, just for whatever that big, that's the big question mark. I think that's what drives all of us nuts is why, why? I think that shit was an ark, man. I think it's way older than it is, like 30,000 years, and it was built to fucking all those, like, all those esophagus-looking things. Those were filled with seeds and shit, and Uh, it's because they knew some big rock was coming, and that the only thing that they could build to survive that shit was going to be this pyramid. It was, like, waterproof and everything. Wow. And I think, you you know, that that rock came, and nothing happened, and now we're just all too fucking stupid to figure it out. (laughs) Well, you know, one thing that's good to keep in mind is even if they were using slaves, according to the standard theory, they would have had to have been laying one stone every 1.9 minutes in order to accomplish it. Well, yeah, I think it was high technology for sure. I think they were way above where we are today. I think they just figured out some really cool shit. Now, like, we had Scotty Roberts on here a while ago, and I know some people may say one thing about Scotty or another, but, like, the man's fucking on with his shit. And, you know, when it comes to the the uh, idea of slaves, there was no mention of slaves when it came to uh, uh, ancient Egypt. There were people who were part of the, uh, you know, like working class, upper class, but they weren't slaves. They had wages. They lived well. The idea of slaves, that that's fucking Good work Hollywood. is done by high paid people. For exactly. Sure. It's fucking like you, you can't get a king's chamber. And if you ever, like, anybody who's listening to the show right now, go search, um, like, fuck, I'm going to find this shit right now, but, like, there was one way that they have found, like, some French uh, archaeologist, like, not archaeologist, but, like, actual uh, 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 architect discovered a way that they could have built the pyramid without water pumps, without fucking, like, any type of water levels, any of this other shit, without a ramp, and it was all based on, you know, just very good ingenuity and proper engineering and you cannot get a king's chamber that you cannot slip a piece of paper in between any part of that stonework with fucking slaves because you know if if, if i'm a slave i could tell you anybody who's worked at mcdonald's 
or like any of the fast food <laughs> restaurants. You're gonna, you're, like, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I have not had like, a, a, okay, somebody who's worked at McDonald's. I haven't had a fucking Big Mac that was made right for a long fucking time. Uh, and right. they're making still minimum wage. Big Mac, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Right. Minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, but if you were making that Big Mac for the gods, like if you actually thought that you were making <laughs> it, that your manager was a god on earth, that your man, right. and maybe right. no, man. In I, that I quit, case, I told my last boss to go fuck themselves. I'm just like fucking fire me. They fucking like let me go. Like they went. But what like, if he could just? He could just stare you into submission because he's such yeah. a fucking mystic, man. Well, he just, just looks through you your get, soul, Chris, and you're like, you get uh, yeah, I'll just so keep much you're just gonna you're just crying like a bitch. Wait, what? Wait, you're saying the wait? Who was your? This is a Burger King manager that could stare into your soul. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! I'm just saying. It's like, like uh, that the cat in fucking Breaking Bad, right? Uh, those who ran, those days are over anyway. The other day I ordered Gus, my fucking A&W on an iPad. Got his jock blown off, but. On an iPad, holy fuck, that's high. That's high tech. You, 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 Edmonton. And then the lady was just sitting there to hand me my burger. Like there was no real communication. It was just kind of awkward. But once they can figure out a way to hand me that burger, she's fucking fired. <laughs> this is what we've devolved into. We are about to crack the code of the period. Right. And now we're down to like, God damn it, Burger King burgers yeah. aren't what yep. they used to be. That's how bad our civilization has gotten. We Pretty can't much. even make a proper fucking burger anymore. That's been lost. That ancient. And she's art. getting paid. Oh, well, Darren, I, th I think you nailed it. Are, are you familiar with Dr. John Brandenburg? He's the scientist that found a radioactive isotope on Mars that so far can only be identified with uh, uh, a technologically made nuclear uh, devices, and it's found in hot spots that would be uh, consistent with aerial bursts. So that's not to say that there's not a natural form, but when I think of high technology back in those days, you know, if we have nukes today and if there's a nuke on Mars, then really anything is on the table for engineering and what they could have done. This conversation, too, is so overrun with people with access to grind and academia has such a weird um, there's such a weird cross current to academia and everybody at this watering hole has shown up from a different direction and it's impossible to get a straight story. The more time you spend over there, there's a couple of really obvious things that nobody ever talks about that one of them was that this thing may well have been there way the hell before the mm -hmm. Egyptians. I, I don't know if you know any Egyptians or if you've spent time in Egypt, but I have trouble believing those are the people that I shouldn't say. Um, Jesus. Wow. It's not entirely. So racist. Walk it back. Walk it back. Oh, no, 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 shut up. So we racist, can't even make a hamburger. Man. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just saying that so that you don't get shit on by SJW to somehow no, no, arrive no. at our it neighborhood. But I, I do. <laughs> race, it has to do with people and it has to do with the people at that time that clearly um, the chronology that we've been given through this, through academia and through Orthodox television, you used to be able to put a much bigger bounding of debate on that conversation and you only, you had to take Zahi Highway boss's word for everything okay, and right. as the internet Zai come along loss. oh jesus Christ. that fucking guy yeah throwing, oh, throwing a tantrum he's in his 60s throwing a tantrum because you he has no fucking power he's got friends but no bring, power bring him some hookers jesus christ <laughs> you know, freaking out like that is not uncommon in egypt Mushrooms. that's sort of how they express themselves you know <laughs> a lot of is that right there's a lot wow. of yelling 
it's great. It's but anyway, there's, there's the uh, there's the possibility that the reason why we can't explain why they did that with the technology back then was that it was done even before that. There's some really interesting stuff about geopolymers that a lot of people have trouble with, but the oldest recipe for cement in the world is Egyptian, and it appears as though something way, way before that was a kind of way of liquefying rock so that you could actually right. pour stones into place. Yeah. Um, you know those little nipples that come out of the stone at random places in in you know the Mayan ruins, and in the Valley Temple in Egypt, uh, there's that same kind of super megalithic construction. And there's some really credible people, geologists, and people who talk about early geopolymers. Um, if you go there and you look at the ruins, a lot of these things that look like they're solid stone really have a very thin casing of really hard stone on them, and then it's a much cheaper, um, easier to work with stone on the inside. Uh, and the other thing regarding what we were talking about a minute ago, there's a third voice as to where this technology came from that kind of associates it with a much more taboo stream that English cultists and occultists and um, Potter, as long as people have been around, have talked about, uh, this has become popularized again with the DMT movement, that there's disincarnate entities. There are entities that don't take up bodies, that when you do certain things to your head and give yourself radio head, you know, if you've read Terrence McKenna, there's lots of protocols yeah. about how to interact with non-physical things. And so if it's a Ouija board, if it's a DMT pipe, if it's, you know, hanging by your breast muscles until you get that natural DMT drip, there's a lot of technology that before the Christian onslaught that crushed all <laughs> opposing mm. idea structures. Yes. A huge part of the ancient world was communing with these disincarnate entities. And frequently you would get ideas. I mean, I don't know how many artists. I know we have one graphic designer amongst us. To this day, a lot of Several. artists will yeah. do that chemical Ouija board thing, you know, a hit of LSD or a DMT pipe or something. And you encounter this frequency and possibly entities that, you know, if you, you come up with genuine information from these states, the shamanic states, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Yes, so that's right. that third possibility of the influence of shamanism may be one way to explain. Because you don't need a calculator to do math. You, If you know how to liquefy stones, they were able to generate a, an amount of heat that no one could explain. Um, you know, the electroplating, the gold and silver uh, uh, um, electrum. You needed a massive amount of heat and electricity to generate that. And they have them on the obelisks. And so clearly there's evidence of at least being able to generate enough heat to be able to melt or liquefy stones. You know, the mm -hmm. obsidian sculptures in the Cairo Museum, there's no way to carve obsidian. To, to, to imagine getting, I was like, I understand the psychedelic state, but, and, mm -hmm. but to, to travel into that place. And then, and I love your theory, by the way, it makes a lot of sense to me, but to travel into that place and connect with some kind of interdimensional entities and then get instructions from them and bring that back into the world. It's very contact, isn't it? Remember that Jodie Foster movie, Contact? It's yes. That, it's that story, sure. basically. It was amazing. I saw it in like a drive-thru and that was about all I'm going to say about that. I think it's more of a Matthew McConaughey movie. Yeah, but that is an interesting what that is an name? interesting idea that this oh. is the way that <laughs> And also, a huge part part of the reason for a lot of the weird secrecy, most of what we know about Egypt came from Victorian English people that were yep. quite dismissive of the Egyptians and very, you know, hugely racist and hugely dismissive of everyone but themselves. But huge occultists, you know, the Golden Dawn. And um, right. there were some people, McGregor Mathers and the guy that did the tarot, Wait, A.E. Wait. And yes. um, these guys were Egyptologists, but they were also um, 
I don't know actual members of the Golden Dawn, but there was a lot of fraternal societies of very Golden Dawn, Golden Dawn-esque nature. And these people, there's uh, correspondences between them that come to light that in symbolism of Egypt that corresponds to tarot symbolism, they would intentionally mix things up because there's certain secrets that you're sworn to uphold if you're in some you know, fraternal societies. So if you have a dual responsibility that you're in a secret society and you've obliged yourself not to talk about certain things and your day job is you're an Egyptologist and the stuff you're digging up from Egypt is classic um, you know, magical uh, operation. Wow. You're going to have a conflict of interest, and part of the reason we all have this weird cognitive dissonance is that we grew up believing something that is just absolutely not true. And every one of us, especially artists, for some reason, you can just look, and it expresses a level of consciousness that does not correspond to what we are told about the history. So it has to be one of these alternate things, and it might just be good old-fashioned human ingenuity over a much longer period of time. Uh, John West's whole thing is there was this previous and Graham and everybody really um, Robert Baval there was this whole previous chapter to human history that Orthodox academia isn't acknowledging and good old fashioned human beings look what we've done since Henry Ford you know so if we had right. 10,000 years to develop stuff there's nothing in Egypt that we couldn't do in 5,000 years and they might have had 100,000 years if all of Plato and Herodotus and all those people that they weren't joking. It wasn't an allegory when they talked about these pre-chapters of humanity. And these are the ruins. Um, in Australia, there's a huge thing about there's certain places where you can't acknowledge pre-existing civilizations because the queen has some tenuous ownership over Australia that won't hold up to questioning. So there's a huge uh, <laughs> It's all it takes. Yeah, it's You're weird. Right. And all of a sudden, I've got a lot of really good friends here that um, can't, they're not even you know entertainment types. They're uh, professors and doctors, and they can't finish their work because their work leads them to all of the different cultures, including Egypt, the Eastern Australia, and well, mine there, for there gold are, and stuff. Well, there, there are, there is proof on the western coast of Australia that Egypt has actually been there, and I, I know that it, it's within like the last uh, three to four thousand years or so that a yep. expedition was, uh, you know, stranded on the western coast. They left hieroglyphics and. They essentially said that, you know, like, we're here, this is our story, we're, you know, yeah. this is the king we were serving, and people are saying, like, oh, these hieroglyphics could not exist, it has to be a fucking hoax. I'm sorry, we've yeah. proven the boats can fucking survive the goddamn ocean. Yeah. They yeah, could have right. gotten there. If a plane could fly, apparently be, have been blown up, whether it's through through extraterrestrial or through extra-governmental forces, and its parts could be found on Either part of whether it's the Malaysian, the Indian, the Madagascar, the South South African, or the Australian coast, there is a part that an ocean-faring fucking vessel could make it from the like, through the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean, out to the Western Australian coast. It may take a while, but it could get there. And anybody who says it's, it's not the, possible is bullshit. It's the trade winds. Thor Heyerdahl proved it was possible. Thor Heyerdahl made a boat out of reeds in the old way, according to these old recipes. And he got on the trade winds and he sailed to Easter Island and he sailed. So it's, it's been proven. It's just academia doesn't, for whatever reason, and there's lots of reasons, there is some obstruction in us uh, learning the truth about that. And so um, King Tut, there's some gold in King Tut's face mask that came from Australia. There's, um, there's in one of his, you know, that real beautiful green um, emerald looking thing on one of his sarcophagus is a Egyptian opal. So it's very provable. By the way, that's why I'm here. I'm here doing that story. It's a really contentious story, but that's where I am, where all those ruins are. So it was a couple of brothers who were the son of a pharaoh, sons of the pharaoh, who came here, and there's a whole backstory that 
um, you know, we can talk about it some other point, but they came here, they got um, shipwrecked. One of them got bit by a snake when they got here, and so they didn't really have the proper people, but they had to do the whole preparation. You know, it's very important to them what you do to somebody who's just died. And so, it, it, and the kind of authenticating thing is that the language is pre-dynastic, pre which is impossible to fake, and it's accurate. So who is going to... And so academia comes out of the woodwork here to destroy anybody who tries to take that seriously and so it's a it's a sticky story it's a weird story but clearly it does seem like it happened and well, the why, reason why just, why did they want to why this has always been confusing to me why gold. don't they accept it why do they get so oh. angry because they, they make money off the books that they write for the students who yeah, take their classes yeah. and it's a matter there's of there's a lot that, of answers it's a matter of that like oh yeah. like oh shit there's some new information fuck this a lot of like three three years worth of work I got to fucking put into a new book yeah. and my entire theory that I base my entire career off of is completely useless. Ego what is about the if you're one a school and you have to, what if you had to republish every history book in the world? What if you had to republish every, um, there's a, you know, it's a natural principle of physics, entropy and resistance to change. And if an object in motion wants to, st I mean, and, and at rest wants to stay at rest. So good old fashioned human inertia and gatekeeping. I don't know how many academics or professors you know, but if you try and say something against some professor's life's work, even if he knows it's wrong, <laughs> he's not going to let you finish your sentence. And so it's so bound up in human egos and nonsense. Right. But there does seem to be something else taboo, like the presence of an occult voice or the presence of of aliens i really am not inclined to think aliens did this but at the same time i haven't really seen anything that absolutely proves it wasn't aliens and it would sure make a lot of pieces fit together since we're talking about this by the way i've just posted something it's one of the promos for the new show but i've literally animated a series of what if scenarios that nice. are just bizarre and cool. um, inspired by lsd yeah. beautiful lsd here in australia anyway um and that's uh, i just posted it on this thing i don't know if you can see it yet but it's a little I don't know if you want to play it or watch it later, but it addresses this specific thing. What is that unexplainable thing that nobody's talking about that was this sudden spike in technology? You know, we went from nothing, living in shit and eating one yeah. another, to mm -hmm. bicameral <laughs> legislature. You know, the, pro the, the idea of ownership didn't exist, and then all of a sudden, property ownership, slaves, labeling your wine... Um, the thing that got me was they went from nothing to bicameral legislature. Like all of a sudden government had this fully formed structure. Language, there's no developmental right. period for language. Acupuncture, how the fuck do you know how to acupuncture somebody through trial and error? There's just no way. And so you, one of John's things that really got me going, sorry to talk so much, but Tom, no, John no said this thing. You get a there's just the link. no people, way. I've got people in the, in the uh, YouTube chat who actually want, to, want that link. So send me the link so I can send it out to people because they, they okay. want to watch it. Oh, it's, it rocks. There's a whole series. And there's one I did about levitating stones, oddly enough, since we were just uh, talking about that. Um, uh, so, okay. Um, you know our chat on the... It's right there. I'll send you the proper link. So you... I, I'd like to watch... How long is that video there? It says anyway, so... Um, GMO. That's, it. that's it. That's the one. It... It's about three minutes. That's I'd be down the screen it. I mean, but I'm not, I'm not no, running the show, so I don't okay. want to be... Oh. Like, well, if you want, it's there, and it's really cool. It's about four minutes long. It's a it's a great little animated short that I did as a if we do a theatrical release, it'll be uh, like an animated short. Believe it or not, Venice sent me the uh, link through Facebook, and I actually streamed it on the show about ten minutes ago. Oh, <laughs> well, you're right. just talking. Right. I'm just like like oh, check this out. I like I throw it up on the screen. I'm like oh, everyone, go for it. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> the objective here was uh, we're in a phase of our promotional machine where we're just trying to go viral. So I thought, what's the most contentious subject about ancient Egypt? And uh, this, I think, uh, if you watch it all the way to the end, there's kind of a weird surprise at the end. And it wasn't done to live up to some academic ideal as much as to be sensational and weird. Um, and uh, I think it does that. We can get, you can get back to me after you watch it. Now, now, now speaking of uh, getting back to the show, I know, I know we press pause. Can, can we continue the show? Oh, sure. Didn't we get smarter when they crossbred the monkey and the pig? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and more delicious. <laughs> get, yeah, get, get Gordon back on here. I'm, I'm trying to like get, get a hold of him through Twitter for like the last like six months. He's like, oh, I'm in Australia. I, ca I can't understand what you're saying because you're cold. I'm like, you motherfucker. <laughs> you know, I was going to share with you guys while you were mentioning acupuncture. I had a really interesting experience, you know, just to my own, you know, obviously subjective experience in, uh, you know, a high level psilocybin state where I could see the acupuncture points all throughout my body or what I wow. points. And I could see that they were the constellations. Wow. And, and it was this really, you know, wild experience. It was really, um, you know, something that stuck with me. And, I mean, it was exactly that. Not that I know the constellations in my day-to-day -day life, but, I mean, except for a few. But um, so what was interesting, though, was when I was in Egypt in the Valley of the Kings, and you go down underground into some of these, um, you know, tunnels they have down there. They have images of the pharaohs and the gods with the constellations on their bodies. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, wow. And like, and they look just like the acupuncture points. And, and when I saw it, I was like, that's exactly like what I experienced. And it was just something, you know, from my own subjective experience, that was a fascinating connection that I did see there. And, and when you're bringing up the idea of people tapping into this on a higher level, particularly when you're incorporating, obviously, like uh, Jeremy Narby, you know, who wrote The Cosmic Serpent, you know, he mentioned in that in the Amazon, the shaman don't even have a word for taking the ayahuasca without singing. Like, it's one wow. and the same thing. Wow. You sing when you do it. And, and from my own personal experience, that's exactly what I've discovered. And the, the whole process of being able to decrypt um i don't remember who it was that said it but it rang true to me that the pyramid is a song you know even with our in our work on vortex based mathematics we had a professor from the university of hawaii who decrypted how to use these math codes to sort of show the harmonics of the stones of the pyramid and it's a really fascinating word it's kind of you know within my own genre of work and some of it even goes over my head um but I have no doubt after experiencing it from inside and having that time alone in there that it's absolutely a resonance chamber, um, perhaps a power plant of some sort, or perhaps just a consciousness amplifier. And I think particularly if you combine it with the use of those plants, you know, the acacia trees, whatever, that it's known, yeah. the, the psilocybin's all over uh, Sinai, I mean... You know, and the so, blue lotus. Yeah, but the blue lotus probably isn't quite as powerful as the acacia. But they were a civilization who was there for thousands of years in, you know, a 
a pretty extreme climate probably even at that time. So they would know all the plants. You know, yeah. it, it, there's nothing that's going to be outside their knowledge because that's all they did. I'm actually going to say their extractions were probably quite powerful. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. They, they definitely were, must have been incredibly <laughs> powerful. Right. <laughs> I mean, come on. That This is, you know, the whole pharmacopoeia of the ancients is talk about something that's completely lost. We will never, ever know. Who knows? They could have had some missing ingredient that we're not even aware of. It could just be that, that DMT or uh, the LSD or any of these chemicals are, are rudimentary, that they barely are allowing us to access this yeah, operating yeah. system that's hidden inside of us. And potentially, once you access it, figuring out how to liquefy stone and build pyramids doesn't seem so astounding anymore, which is, by the way, I think this is such a, um, uh, it's a little dismal, you know, to think that like we, we, we are just the survivors of this incredible civilization, barely, even with the highest tech stuff that we have, we still will never approximate whatever these people are doing only yeah. because we have this technology without the myth behind it without the connection yeah. to the transcendent there's a huge idea that we're exploring in the new show that um it's another thing that really artists understand uh, it's it came into fashion and then went out of fashion and it's come back in now in a more legitimate way the idea that your left and right hemispheres of your brain completely function differently and it's not like in the 70s where the right brain does this and the left brain does this the hemispheres are involved in everything but the way they approach things are fundamentally different your left hemisphere is hierarchical and it's all about lists and language and your right yeah. hemisphere is non-hierarchical it's all associative and it uh, doesn't participate in time you know like stoners and artists never show up to work on time nobody cares yeah. about hierarchy it's the reason why stoners make terrible employees um and so in Egypt, you can see, by the way, they communicated. It was an entirely right-brain culture, or comparatively, we've had our right brain put to sleep because there's just not a lot of call unless you're a creative or a comic or something. Right. Very few people in American in, in modern society ever get to use these creative muscles or use their right brain, and there's just this culture-wide atrophy where the value of symbolism, the ability to participate with people without words, the ability to show up and not impose a hierarchy or a pecking order. These things aren't natural to us anymore, but if you look at Egypt, you see a culture that at least had the right brain intact. And the thing that we're exploring in the new show, which is basically the premise of alchemy and occultism and Chinese Taoism, is that you have these opposite polarities. You have masculine, uh, male and female, you know, positive and negative polarities in the body that uh, is what Tantra is all about. But then you have this aesthetic and hierarchical polarity in the brain, too. And the the union of those two opposites creates this third um, type of consciousness, this emergent property that they used to call the philosopher's stone. Every wow. type of occultism, every type of Eastern, uh, and I think that's why the Western world was reintroduced to that. And we would have never known it had we only had religion to tell us about metaphysics. But it was the hallucinogenic experience that reintroduced us to this third type of consciousness that isn't left hemisphere or right hemisphere, and that's what the object of occultism and alchemy was all about. May I ask you a question? This is something yes. that I think you can definitely clarify for me. Is Go. there any truth that the Catholic mass is based on Egyptian rituals? Fucking 100% yes. 100% yes. All through, yeah. 
hundred percent through oh god yes. christianity yeah it's just riddled um and in a really disingenuous way you know when you have a kid and you buy a car and it's that fisher price toy where it has a little steering wheel and a little you know um gear shift and a little fake radio yes. and it has all the accoutrements and you can be under the illusion that you're driving this car very much of modern religion is this kind of placebo where you have these dials and they don't do anything and if you really understand operative versus speculative, if you understand doing something versus studying it, the difference between watching mm -hmm. Bruce Lee or taking a karate class, or the difference between going to an orchestra versus learning the violin yeah. yourself, there's a participatory nature to what the paradigm was before Christianity. And we kind of get this weird echo of it that we call occultism or esotericism, but it was a much more, it was just science back then. It was just this way of healthy living that if you aren't suppressed by these social structures, by the way, um, the walls around those old towns, speaking of slavery, those walls weren't there to keep people out. <laughs> that was teaching people to be domesticated. Uh, the, those old Mesopotamian and in, you know, those first civilizations, wow. um, Robert Lawler just lived with me, um, just stayed here for the last couple of months, who, uh, you know, Robert translated that book, The Temple and Man, the big fat Schwaller book. Yes. <laughs> so I had Robert all 110 pages or so, Oh, right? my God. I got halfway through, yes. fell asleep because it was so That's a tough so deep. Oh, my God. It's, yeah. Temple and Man, and fucking you know way people. You know what? The reason you get so tired reading that book is your brain is building synaptic pathways so fast that I've oh, never read works. anything. That you have so many associations, and your poor brain is like, oh, my God, that's a connection. That's a connection. No. What's the name of this book? The Temple, Temple and Man. Man. Temple and Man. Whoa. Check it out. And it's Schwaller, right? Uh, it's Schwaller de Lubitsch. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I'm just going to text you. I, I can actually send you the book. One, one second here, Duncan. Uh, shit. Oh, thank, thank you. It's a good book. Oh, Duncan, you know how in church everyone says amen? Yes. You know, at the yeah. end of a prayer, everyone says amen? Yes. That's um, that's one of the most prominent ones. But Christianity is littered, riddled with um, Egyptian magic. Whoa. That is so trippy. I mean, always, also the amen is sort of the om, isn't it? It's the oh, it's the sound, you know? But wow, that is nuts to think. And I agree with you. I And I think with, um, well, I don't agree with you completely. I think in some you know, I, I don't know when the last time you went to a mass was, but my friend who is a Christian took me to church and, you know, there's the transubstantiation, the, yep. it's the, it, it's the, the communion wafer is transformed in the flesh of Christ. And yep. uh, at this particular church, uh, there was like the different, it's a big church. So there's different places where people are giving the communion wafer, the, the post transubstantiated communion wafer which is now the flesh of jesus right. and uh, i went to get the wafer and the woman is saying this is my uh this is my blood this is my body eat this in remembrance of me and uh i was looking in her eyes and um she was she believed that was the flesh of god like this was not a toy car this woman had tuned into that particular archetype and was wow. emanating the kind of beautiful combination of heartbreak and like redemption that like the authentic Christians are constantly heartbroken. They're always heartbroken because of the, <laughs> you know, I, you know what I mean? Because it's so tragic yeah. what happened and they're not living because in of the time. unpleasantness. Yeah. 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 They're not in time. It's like, he, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, they just, there's the tomb of Christ that they just renovated or something. Renovated. They like, <laughs> <laughs> they added a, 
and his wife. They put in a new kitchenette, and they put in like a really nice bathtub. The fucking old bathtub in there was shit. More closets. Yeah, it's horrible. But it, yes, more closet space and great tiling. But they um, but the, you could see the people who were watch this this tomb gazing in as they lifted up one of the I don't know they lifted up the mausoleums they could look in these people on their face it is the same heartbreak of a person whose friend just died in a car accident and you realize oh they're so absorbed in the myth that they're no longer in time there so yeah. I, I but though I do uh, clearly there are many many religions that have not hit that level of intensity have not dissolved into the mythology uh, but not all of them. And, and I and I think the missing component, uh, the, the, the clearly the missing component, is uh, cannabis, is some kind of psychedelic. Uh, one of my favorite things to do, though I haven't done it in some time, is to get in, is to eat some edible marijuana, and go to a, a mass, go to some. Oh, oh my! Oh my God! Have you watched like the last couple of uh, Joe Rogan specials? Like, no, don't do that. Edibles. Are bad. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> hey, hey, my favorite story. Don't... My favorite story see, about mass is um, Ter- Terrence McKenna wrote quite a lot, and John Allegro before this. When you go to church and you eat something that's mm-hmm. supposed to give you a religious experience, that's a hollow echo of when a different kind of religion that was much more participatory, where the flesh of God was a mushroom. You showed up, that's a Terrence McKenna, classic Terrence McKenna. That, to me, explains where that sacrament of the Christ comes from, Mm -hmm. and that early Christianity was so um, keen to subjugate and to take over that they would adopt little flavors of the local local things and then incorporate them into ritual to... um, uh, You know, there's a a highly contentious thing, but um, rather than me... uh, trying to act like I'm an expert in this. John Allegro and Terrence McKenna both, if you read about the magic mushroom as the original thing, that's about as cool as uh, theology gets. Well, I'll tell you, I had an anthropology professor in college who was studying uh, one of these mushroom cults in Mexico, and I can't remember the name of of them, but uh, these missionaries came in, and on their Bible, the Bibles, nobody was touching their Bibles. They're trying to give them away. No one would touch them. <laughs> and uh, they couldn't figure out why until they realized that they had uh, the, 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 the translation that they had put on the Bible, which was supposed to be the word of God, was the same name these people used for mushrooms. And before wow. they ate mushrooms, they wouldn't have sex. They couldn't drink. So they didn't want to touch the Bibles without going through a purification <laughs> ritual first. Wow. Okay, and I, I'm, I'm just going to call it one person here. Pork, roll, egg, uh, nachise. Uh, you called me on, on your YouTube chat. Uh, by the way, yes, I'm, I'm uh, communicating via notepad because it's actually easier to communicate by, with you guys via that because I'm on the YouTube. And uh, uh, by the way, go fuck yourself. Uh, continue on. <laughs> Wait, what did he say? What? what uh, something along uh, the lines of, uh, I've got a big ego with 63 people in chat. I'm like, man, we got a fucking oh, tight-knit community. I don't fucking care. Like, don't yeah. fucking, like, ruin the vibe. Like, that's the whole Bro thing. hugs. Bro hugs. Bro hugs. Do some fucking DMT fuck breathing. Do some DMT <laughs> breathing, man. <laughs> Hug it out. Oh, my God. Yeah, don't even look at it. You're... 
you know, you'd better to look into the Ark of the Covenant than stare at a live <laughs> chat on YouTube. Are you out of your mind, man? You'll burn your I'm sorry. Brain that my way. wife married pure <laughs> fucking Croatian. I will take my shirt off now. Well, I think no, you I'm know done. one thing is that okay, one do thing it. you know, and getting to like like what Randall does, and you know, I guess the the Rands, Randall and myself, Randy, you know, is that. Coming at it from you know our own perspectives, out of these experiences, certainly for me, speaking for myself, out of these experiences, there seems to be a mathematical type of knowledge yeah. mm. that emanates from that connection. And certainly everything that I saw in Egypt as well, um, it's, it's encrypted mathematics. Everywhere. Everything is mathematical. I mean, and I think that's how they were actually able to tap into understanding the distances and the alignments and, and all because everything that they did, mathematics is worship to them. Well, this is uh, something I read and God knows, you know, again, many of you guys who I, I'm, we're sharing this conversation with are you're brilliant and I'm not <laughs> so brilliant. So I read these things and I try to absorb what I can. And, but this, so the idea was um, an alien, an advanced intelligence, an advanced race would get to the point where they would actually evolve into mathematic, in, into, into math. They would transform into laws of physics and that, when we come in contact with math, that that is the alien. That math is a higher intelligence meeting mm -hmm. us and saying yep. hello. So yeah, wow. the, then then the pyramid truly does become the house of the gods, not because gods live inside of it, but because the mathematical principles that are encoded within it are the gods. Absolutely, and you can model wow. it. I mean, that's what I, I you know. I and I even claim that you can mathematically model spirit, which is even more far out, you know, which is in which is intersection points with this geometry. In other words, geometry is resonance, is sound. Sound creates geometry, vibration, emotion, mm. which is which is physics, which is the study of matter and motion. You know, so study of matter and motion is physics <clears throat> traditionally. And the only other thing you have in physics other than matter, which is totally unexplained, you know, mass, what it, what it even is, uh, how it's created. I mean, they're going for these the Higgs boson, whatever, but it, we all know it's all BS. And at the end of the day, um, they're left with, you know, sort of an, an infinite regress that they can't overcome. And it's because... The only other thing that you really encounter in science is a field, what they talk about fields, quantum fields, different yes. types of fields, uh, some sort of a non-local phenomena. And that is spirit, mm. but spirit has a mathematical quality, and that's what the Egyptians understood. By creating these geometries, you're essentially everything is an amplifier. The human body is a coil, it's an amplifier, you know, and it's all geometrically designed to harness sound energy power you know vibration yeah and i'm convinced that that's how they were that's the higher consciousness that they were tapping into because 
frankly, I mean, I don't know everybody else's different experience, but if you go far enough or if you go all the way, because I believe there's a certain point where your brain is just 100% filled up, you're all the way in there. You, obviously, we all know at the end, we are God. We are the one. You know, we are everything. Yeah. So the point is, there, there is no, we need no alien intelligence. And certainly with a culture that wasn't restricted, that was openly engaged, perhaps on massive levels with many, many people in creating resonance, sound resonance, being completely committed to those type of practices, who knows what could be achieved. Wow. I love it. It's so cool. That's so cool. Very quickly, you know what you're talking about there is, is what we're attempting to do now. Like you're saying that they had created a method through which to transmit the energy of spirit, uh, and that's what we're trying to do as we as our uh, with AI, you know, and an int- and a, we are trying to replicate that feat of bringing spirit into um, into inorganic form, and uh, and perhaps they were successful at it. That's a very mind blowing point you just made. Excuse me, sorry to interject. Graphic, that's, no, that's, that was awesome. Um, graphic designers uh, and visual artists come at this, and the reason a lot of artists are drawn to Egypt is their use of sacred geometry, like the Fibonacci spiral, Fibonacci proportions, and the golden section. Those are the tent poles of architecture and of visual art because they create this visual beauty if you can incorporate this geometry. What I didn't realize was that the same geometric proportions that are pleasant in a visual composition translate directly to proportions of frequency and sound. So you only get two things into your brain and nothing goes directly into your brain, by the way, it all goes through this filter, but you only hear, you only get sound and light. So the proportions of frequencies that you get in sound that are pleasant. Like if you do a one, three, five on a piano, that's pleasant. If you do a one, four, seven, that sounds awful. And it requires a consciousness to participate in that. Like what part of you is it that feels good with good music or that, that cringes? It's a weird consciousness exercise all by itself. And so I didn't know, like my whole life, it was like a superpower for a graphic designer. If you understand the golden section, um, and you understand the Fibonacci proportions. That's amazing. I didn't realize that those same proportions work for music, and those are the wow. proportions of beauty. So Egypt didn't use math for math's sake, but they used the math that's generated from the sacred geometry. And I think a big, not a secret of Freemasonry, but something that not enough people talk about, that square and compass and their reverence for geometry and very, well, one of the common memes about masonry is that g in the masonic logo part of it stands for geometry and the g itself is kind of like a fibonacci spiral and so those if you try and schematize i think someone just said that word schematize a while back if you try and schematize consciousness and you use these tools from sacred geometry you can actually do a really good job of schematizing consciousness and that's what that old sacred art was about Well, what you said hits it exactly on the point. What I see, my whole theory with physics and how they did it is that sound and light are actually an in, they have an inverse relationship that is that ultimately that positive negative balance. Wow. And this is how it works. That's huge. If I ask, for instance, what is the fastest thing traveling throughout the universe? That's light. It's light, right? Traveling through the vacuum of space. But that's Jean-Luc actually Jean-Luc fucking correct. Picard. I that's that that's the fastest. <laughs> that's right. Hey, wait. So I set you up. I could so. I'm sorry. I'm a lot. But, um, but actually, so the theory is 
Okay, so what happens is light traveling through the vacuum of space is thought to be the fastest thing traveling, but light slows down within a medium. So when light is within the atmosphere, it's traveling more slowly. Eventually, it's you know penetrating the ground as heat, but it slows down, spreads out, and it gets weaker, right? Uh, sound is the exact opposite. It supposedly doesn't propagate at all in a vacuum, assuming there is such a thing, ultimately. But sound doesn't propagate in a vacuum, and sound, it's well known, travels faster the denser the medium because it's vibrating, you know, everything's cl packed closer together. So, you, okay. know, you, can pass, you can pass sound through the earth much faster than through the atmosphere, for instance. So well, when, you, okay. when you think about a black hole, which is this ultimately or something <sighs> like that, a, a very dense piece of matter, and this is what I claim, if there is such a thing as a black hole where... The matter is so dense that the escape velocity of light can't escape it. So all the light is trapped within, being sucked within it, that the sound penetrating that density of matter actually transcends the speed of light. And that is, uh -huh. if you will, like the word of God. It's creating the geometric array of everything in the universe. Wow. Damn. Well, okay. If I, you guys will excuse me, I I only had an I didn't I didn't know that this was going to be such an insanely amazing conversation. I have to go, you guys. But that you're leaving me on just I'm going to just go lay in bed and curl up into the fetal <laughs> position and weep. <laughs> I ate an edible before I did it. So you guys well, excuse well, me. <laughs> well, well, Duncan. I love you. That was awesome. Well, well, Duncan. Here's the thing. Uh, you. I have to have you on the show at some point in April, uh, probably for my birthday, because it's April 15th, uh, so I'm in the 14th, Whoa. depending on when you are, because you're fucking awesome. I wish you'd be you on longer. Too. Yeah, uh, anytime you want, just let me know. I'm oh. always around, so just let me know. We have Skype. I'd love to do it again. Thank you oh, so much for having my me. My pleasure. You, you're, you're a, you are a gent and a classy fellow, and dear God, thank you for, for spending the time. Thank you for having me. What an honor to be on this wonderful show, and, and I'm so happy that you guys are doing this amazing work. In any way that I can help, just let me know. Thanks. You guys have all blown Spread my the mind. Word. It, 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 the only help could be spread the word to raise money for John Anthony West. Straight That's right. up. It's all about John. All I'll about be tweeting. Okay, I'll see you guys. So, Thanks, Duncan. Appreciate Later, it. Duncan. I've oh. got a question for Randall if he's still with us. Uh, yes, I'm listening to everything that's being said here. Okay. I'm taking, <laughs> taking notes. I'm taking a lot of notes here. Well, Randall, I mean, you know... Uh, a minute ago, uh, one of the gentlemen was talking about, you know, being on mushrooms and seeing the meridian points on his body. And one of the things that I take away from your work um, is the idea that these monuments, these edifices uh, were built also on sacred points on the planet as if those are the meridian points of the planet as well. And if, if geometry and math is kind of their highest expression of godliness i still want to know how did they build these things i mean what is how do you think they physically did it i think i get it on a conceptual level but how did they mechanically do it in your opinion pulleys simple machines and the ability to move large blocks uh, with, with pulleys like honestly came down to simple machines uh, dividing weight up between uh, certain amounts of divisions of pulleys. That like that. That's the only way. Only way. What does Randall think? 
Um, well, taking the path of least resistance are always going to, you know, what you, the scientifically preferred explanation is the simplest one. And up to a point, pulleys would probably be the way to go. I mean, there are low tech mm -hmm. ways of moving pretty heavy loads. And, uh, but once you get up past oh, a two or three tons, you're getting into, you know, like now, of course, at this point we would use, um, you know, uh, technological devices we wouldn't do it mm -hmm. by hand but right. my grandfather could certainly move loads of up to a thousand pounds and regularly did it by hand when they would load and unload trucks at the building site or whatever the case would be or if they're moving a, a beam into place um you know there are there are ways you can do that when you get up to you know several tons 10 tons 20 tons 30 tons that's when it becomes to me really implausible that they were just using uh essentially extensions of their hands um but i hear you it's, you know uh and when you get up to 100 and 200 and 300 tons which would seem to be just uh, a day's work for these guys uh yeah I, I i'm totally convinced that they had to be using some technological means that were not quite you know that, that we don't know um because if you were to make is, a guess, if you were to make a guess, do you think that would be a sound technology, or what do you think it would be? That certainly sounds like a, a a fruitful area of research, and I've seen a few things over the years that might suggest that sound is involved. Um, certainly, uh, I would think that one might look in a lot of the rituals. Again, in the Masonic rituals, there may be specific information. Uh, encoded in error about the specific technologies used. Um, you know, the big stones pretty much seem to be, when we get back into the, the Paleolithic, they were moving big stones right down into the end of the Neolithic. Um, and then the stones begin to get smaller as we become towards modern times. Uh, right. Um, but the system, the system was pretty much the same in the sense of how these structures were laid out. And in every case, it's astronomical. That is one of the unifying features of all of these complexes of ancient sacred architecture built around the planet is the, the presence of astronomy and the presence of geometry. And Brother, we find this consistently over and over again. Brother Randall, one thing before we continue, and the one thing that I've actually been hearing in the uh, chat nonstop since we started for the last two weeks, when is your book coming out? Because everyone wants to know. Oh my God, there's such fervor around it. It is amazing. It's happening. We're going to be putting up a extensive article that I've just written on the carbon cycle uh, that'll be going online pretty soon. But that's not actually the substance of the book itself. The substance of the book itself, I'm hoping to have it done by this summer. Because I've gotten into a regular writing routine now that, you know, I've gotten my business to a point where... You know, I got really sidetracked during the recession because the business really took a big toll because the, the calls weren't coming in like they had been for 15 years. Um, so I got distracted and now I've kind of got things back on a footing again and I've got my time organized much better and I'm doing it as a regular routine. So I think at the rate I'm going, it should be ready about this summer. But anyways, okay, go ahead. Yeah. I, I well, and not to sidetrack too much, but at some point, and, and you know, it was probably not tonight, but at some point, I would love to hear your thought because you hinted at it one time on someone's show, and I don't remember who it was, but you had a, you had some thoughts on the extraterrestrial 
uh, hypothesis, and you had mentioned at that time that it was not what people thought. So at some point, I hope that you, and you're a busy guy, I totally get it. Um, but at some point, I hope you do uh, tell us what that is, because I'm dying to hear it. Well, yeah, I'm dying to get uh, to, to, to tell it. But um, see, the thing is, is that it's kind of like they've, they've identified themselves in multiple ways. It's just we have to read the symbolism that they expressed it. And the symbolism, again, it's uniform all over the planet, in a sense. Once you realize that, you know... It, the consistency of these of these images we were talking earlier about or you guys were talking earlier about the connection between christianity and egyptian mystery traditions and clearly w one of the core tenets of both of those is the idea of death and resurrection because mm -hmm. the whole egyptian mythos is built around this idea of the death and resurrection of osiris uh, the death of the king. I mean, it, and then it has its echoes, for example, in Greek mythology with the death and resurrection of Orpheus. Um, you know, all of these these god kings that go through these symbolic deaths, in Freemasonry, it's the master builder who goes through a death and resurrection. And interestingly, when the, at the, in the Masonic symbolism, if you, um, you know, you look at the Masonic carpets and some of the the uh, the imagery that's in the Masonic manuscripts and so on. You always see the coffin, which is a symbol of the master builder's corpse. But next to the coffin, you see the acacia plant growing, and the acacia plant is the source of the DMT. So mm -hmm. part of this is that yes, there's a there's a spiritual and psychological rebirth, death, and resurrection that takes place in your consciousness that can be catalyzed by the use of the sacrament, the substance, um, whether, you know, it's from whatever source it's derived. Uh, but then there's also the parallel, the correlate to that, which is the death and resurrection of civilization. And then there's the higher correlate of that, which is the death and resurrection of the biosphere. And they're all, in effect, echoes of each other on various levels. And with the death or resurrection of the biosphere, see, this is the thing, the context I think we have to have in order to understand this whole phenomenon and the whole question of ancient civilizations. And that's the that, part I didn't see coming exactly. Yeah, this is the thing. This is it. We have to realize that uh, on a fairly regular cyclical basis, the balance of nature is, over a very short period of time, completely rearranged. And human societies, if they are not prepared to adapt to those periods of those discontinuous periods, those periods of compressed and accelerated change, they will basically go extinct just like species do. And that's what we're in effect seeing, just like the fossil record shows us the extinction of its species as a result of these cyclical events through the history of this planet. The, the, the new model of human history recognizes that, yes, this extinction phenomena is part of the whole history of the human species on this planet and the cultures and societies and civilizations that we have built and that those civilizations certainly now we can we can plausibly theorize that those civilizations may have gone back or a hundred or two hundred thousand years or a quarter million wow. years because wow. we can understand now that every five or six thousand years this planet gets its ass kicked and for 
maybe a few years, a few decades. In the case of the end of the Pleistocene to Holocene transition, we're talking about a period of about 2,000 years where life on Earth was an extreme, uh, extremely unpleasant time to be living on Earth, roughly between 11,600 and 13,000 years ago. Once we understand the scale and the extent to which the planet was rearranged, the, 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 the order of nature was rearranged, we can then begin to appreciate, well, okay, now we get it. Now we can understand why whatever may have been going on, whatever kind of a civilization humankind had been able to create on this planet 20 or 30 or 40,000 years ago, the events of 11 to 12 to 13,000 years ago essentially would have raised, erased about 90% of that. The remaining 10% would have pretty much disappeared for the most part under the vagaries of time that have ensued in the interim since then. But there's still enough of the pieces left that we can begin by connecting the dots and realize that what we're seeing here is that after this event of 13,000 years ago, the planet went through a whole period of aftershocks. These aftershocks, interestingly, the, the demise of these after, aftershocks pretty much coincided with the rise of civilization in the fer Fertile Crescent, you know, four to 5,000 years ago. And this is when finally the planet began to stabilize enough that, that human beings could begin to actually recreate civilization. And I think that's what we're seeing 5,000 years ago is the recreation of civilization. The attempt was to build it on the old model and that the pattern, the blueprint of the old model had been preserved by some means or another, and this is what they were working from. And when you realize that the planet is subjected to these, these transitions, these concentrated periods of transition, these, these discontinuity, discontinuous events, then you realize that, okay, if one were to happen like this today, if an event, say, similar to the Younger Dryas transition of 13,000 years ago happened today, basically within a century or two, we're gone. Our history, our civilization is for the most part gone. Certainly within a millennium or two, the, the remains of it are going to be very sparse. 10,000 years down the road, boom. There, it, it, very little of it is going to be left. Now, now what, what, if what about, we're faced... Okay, go ahead. What about the recent news that the... <laughs> I'm laughing at this because it's so ridiculous. There are certain scientists who want to get together and put like about 100,000 pumps together in the Arctic to refreeze the Arctic. And I'm like, okay, that's oh, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think we're going to need to worry about that. I think yeah, that's no, 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 actually no. like the least of our worries. But, but <laughs> Randall, let me, let, me, let, sure. me, let me comment on something because you just blew my mind a little while ago because even though you were on my show and we talked about these things, and listen, I've never, I was in a college fraternity, but that's as far as I've been into these types of things. But I would venture a guess that most rituals have at their heart this uh, death and resurrection type ideal. And it was only tonight with what you just said that when you said this is on a planetary level, not just a personal or spiritual level, I'm like, wow, okay. Now, I have so a question for you, Randall. Uh, you talked sure. about these symbols being uh, kind of embedded in everything. Aside from being a warning, is there any information that we can extract from it that would be useful today in trying to prevent a future calamity? Oh, well, yeah, I would think that that would have to be would have to be part of it. I mean, I would think that the, the the body of insight or information or knowledge would be incomplete without something about that. I mean, the idea to me, it's it's becomes down to, you know, the our ability to adapt, 
our ability to recognize that we are part of a an ecosystem that really goes much beyond this planet. That's a big part of it. You know, we are not limited to a merely terrestrial ecosystem. We now realize that the that the the entire biosphere is subjected to these incursions, these exogenically sourced incursions. And this is also a huge part of what these ancient cultures were about because again, consistently we find this element of astronomy. We find the effort to duplicate the heavens on the earth. And I think there could have been multiple reasons for that. For one thing, you know, if you're going to have a predictive ability, when you, when you, for example, today, if an astronomer is going to predict the motion of a comet, they have to have a, uh, what are called the elements. There are five elements that are necessary in order to derive the motion of any celestial object, because all celestial objects are in motion, right? But, but, Generally, what interested our ancestors was the anomalous motion against the normal backdrop, the normal rhythmical predictive backdrop of the heavens. There would be these events that were outside, outside of this normal predictive matrix in which the, the, the days and the years and the seasons unfolding. What they did was they laid down a map of the heavens on the earth. By means of that map, they were able to determine the plane of the ecliptic, which is exactly the first thing that an astronomer does if they're going to create a celestial map to, to mark the passage of a celestial object. The first thing you have to have is the plane of the ecliptic defined. You define is that capable that, of being done without optics? Like just by a, yes, a visual? Okay. You, you can do it by eye by tracking the, the positions of the sun through the seasons and marking out the two solstices and gotcha. the equinoxes. So yep, that first point of Aries, which is the equinox, is essentially the foundation line. It's the line like when the master builder went out and stretched the line on the building site, they would establish the foundation line that was the master reference line for everything that oh was going to follow yes, in the building yes, of yes. this temple. This is what they would do. They would go out and, but this line was not arbitrary. It was astronomically determined. So okay. once you laid down, once you defined your axis and you defined the celestial point of interest mm -hmm. and of reference, that's how you determined your line. Uh, right. Now from there, you, you, you can now calculate the ascending and descending nodes of any object that is moving anomalous to the plane of the ecliptic. Once you've got the ascending and descending nodes, you can then figure out the perihelion and the aphelion, which defines the plane of any orbiting object that is not in the plane of the ecliptic. And that essentially gives you the context for predicting celestial motion. Now, so what's interesting is, is the same pattern, the same matrix of lines and reference points that the modern astronomer uses to predict celestial motion are the lines that are defined through these grand schemes of architecture that spread over the landscape. Now, Randall. First of all, I know, I know, I know. Chance has to uh, go back to work, and second of all, I really have to hook you up with uh, John Michael Greer. He's also a brother, and uh, he's uh, done very similar work, parallel to yours, not within the same sphere, but again, more of a compendium. Which everything you've said is just absolutely fantastic, and all the work I've read over the last little while is just blowing my my mind right now. But uh, uh, Chance, if you're there right now, did you want to sign off? Yeah, by the way, I love John Michael Greer. He's a real good friend of mine. Isn't he awesome? Oh, my God. He's one of my favorite episodes. Oh, shit. We went so deep. It was amazing. <laughs> he's amazing. He's an odd fellow and a mason. He took Latin. You know, he's got years of Latin under his belt just so he can study those old grimoires and stuff. He's awesome. Now, who's this? John this Michael is... Greer. Okay. Uh, 
uh, or Randall, I'll send you the link in the book. Yeah, please do. Oh, fuck yes, I will. Holy shit. <laughs> can I make Randall, one, I can I make I one final thir- uh, connection here with some of the earlier conversation oh, that no, I think please. would be very important? Oh, okay. no I, I, I was pointing out that there are, that these structures are built along astronomical lines. So mm-hmm. that means that if, if you're following the motion of the sun or the moon or, or a planet, but usually the sun or the moon, those lines, those objects that they're moving overhead would trace lines on the surface of the earth where they would set on the horizon would then give you a, a landmark so that if you're moving over the landscape, you're traveling on a pilgrimage, let's say, and you're going to a, a, to the next sacred site, what is ultimately guiding you is the, is the positions of the heavenly bodies. And when they set on the horizon, those points where they set on the horizon, if, you know, if you're making your pilgrimage at the auspicious time within the cycle, then you know that that now gives you your, your vector, your trajectory that you're going wow. for. Now, here's the other part, is that the sites themselves are not randomly placed on the landscape. They are sited according to the underlying geology. So there's a there's a there's an as above and an as bo- so below because, for example, one of my favorite places in the, is in the, uh, we were talking about earlier, the Sonoran Desert. In uh, Arizona section of it, there's a place called Wupatki. Anybody ever been to Wupatki Ruins? There well, is a place sure. where you can see the blowhole. There's a blowhole within the sacred uh, ritual center. And the blowhole is the link to a whole series of underground uh, conduits that lead into the fault system that underlies the edge of the Colorado Plateau right there. Now, they were doing essentially the same thing that you find, for example, the Gothic cathedrals are all built over sites of uh, the convergence of underground water uh water courses or mm-hmm. at the places of uh, artesian wells or at sacred wells where people had for thousands of years, literally going back into the Paleolithic, had been um, you know, basically drawing the waters of the earth. Mm-hmm. And so what you have there is you have a pattern that, that, you know, obviously in this quick conversation, I can only throw out the rough idea, but you had a pattern within the landscape that was geologically determined. Well, and, and the pattern was formed by the fault lines, the fissures within the crust. Along those fault lines and fissures, the water would move under pressure. And at the places where these fissure lines, the, the fault lines would cross, was quite frequently the places where they would uh, locate their sacred centers. And so what you had was this correlation between the underlying geology and the overlying astronomy. The final thing is, is that as the sun and the moon predominantly, uh, as the earth goes through the cycles, the moon goes through the cycles and so forth, what happens is stresses are induced in the crust, just like the moon Mm -hmm. induces tides within the ocean. It's also inducing tides within the solid matter of the earth. And those tides the pattern of energy gets focused, concentrated along the lines of least resistance, which are these fault lines in the crust. And so very interesting things can happen under times when uh, some of these fault lines are placed under stress. And oftentimes they will be placed under stress prior to any seismic event that actually manifests in the form of an earthquake. Oftentimes the stresses will be propagated along the fault lines, but there won't be an accompanied seismic event, but the, the pressure is still there. Typically, the underground water, the patterns of underground water, are also following the lines of underground res- uh, of least resistance. And so what you have here is that there are tides essentially moving within the crust of the earth. 
Mm-hmm. And the the pattern of temples and sacred places is linked not only to the map of the sky projected onto the earth, but it's also linked with this pattern of underground or subterranean waters. The other thing is, finally, is that I do believe that the big part of the ritual and using the, the the sacred substances to expand one's consciousness is just as Randy saw the the acupuncture lines on his body, you would see the acupuncture lines of the earth mm. itself when you're yep. in these altered states. And that was a big part of what this ritual was about is because during those states of heightened consciousness, the the lines of light, the lines of the earth would become visible. Okay, wow. admit it. Who all seen that? Time, if you knew the time of year, particularly too, when they were being activated by the celestial motion. Okay, Rand, well, Randall. First of all, this isn't the cutoff for the show. First of all, the Earth is flat. Oh my! God. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, Aaron. First of all, we we just wanted to be able to say goodbye to Chance, but oh my God, that that dump of information! Holy shit! the The chat room went absolutely apeshit. When, when you drop that, that level of knowledge, because everyone hangs with every word you say. and um, uh, But we just want to be able to say goodbye to Chance to have him sign off and let you continue and continue the uh, the show. But still, that is right. absolutely fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you, thank you so much for the opportunity. That was awesome. Randall, that was amazing. I'm going to uh, be first in line to get that book. Fuck it. I'm, okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm booking my plane ticket down to Atlanta right now. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> Hey, have I'll a good night, Chance. All right, Chance. Yeah, chance. good to yes, uh, take care. your acquaintance. All right, gentlemen, rock on. Keep up the good work for John. It happens all the time. People get cancer all the time. Yes, exactly. Amen, Thank brother. you so much, Chance. Cheers. And, and cheers. And, and uh, I didn't get to say, to say goodbye to uh, Duncan earlier. I, I stepped away, but uh, well, d- who d- else d- is still in the house? Is Michael still here? Brandon, Randy? Mark is still here. Okay, look, okay. Let, let's see. Roll call. We've got uh, uh, Chance is still here. Cameron's still here. Randall's still here. Uh, uh, Darren's still here. Who else do we have? Uh, Michael's still, still here. here. Adam's still here. Michael. Michael. Yeah. Are you yeah, coming here. back up north this year, Randall? Uh, I would like to. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to try. I'm going to try to at least get back to Minnesota. I'd like to get and spend some time up in the canoe country. I haven't been up there since I was a kid, and that was a place that I really love, up there in the uh, Boundary Waters canoe area north of lake superior plus i want to do some exploring around the great lakes um you know i had a chance last uh when was it the two trips i made to the paradigm conference you know driving back we had a chance to do some exploring up in the mississippi river valley and other places and um yeah there's some extremely interesting geology there i mean the imprint of the great floods the great meltwater floods uh are spectacularly preserved throughout the midwest and i would like to get back and and do some more mapping of the the great spillways because what they what that does is tells us essentially where the melting epicenters were and that's one of the things that I'm trying to determine through my studies of the of the meltdown of uh, 11 to 13,000 years ago was the the essentially the locations of the melting episodes because the the ice sheet complex did not melt according to you know what we've witnessed in recent centuries when we look at the recession of of glaciers worldwide we're not we didn't see what what happened was not what we would predict and expect which is that the margins of the ice sheet retreated systematically and uniformly back there were actually episodes where there was massive melting well up within the mass of the ice sheet itself 
And if the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis does uh, bear out, um, I think that that's how we're going to determine where the impact locations were, is by tracing the pattern of meltwater. And so that's what I've been doing uh, the last several years. Uh, that's why we were up in British Columbia, Darren, is um, tracing the path of meltwater off the Nishako Plateau up there and down off of Washington. Because I think we can actually, at this point, identify perhaps six or maybe even seven impact sites mm. by tracing the patterns of meltwater. Yeah, hey, I went Randall. and scoped out Spokane with uh, Brad this summer, too. I missed you. I think we missed you by like six hours. Yeah, I think that's I'm, I'm going to take I'm going to take Adam out in a couple of weeks here. We're going to be in the Spokane area in Shaney, I think. And uh, I'm going to take him out and show him the Grand Coulee. Go drive up to the observatory there anyway and yeah. and show him all that. Who's that? Adam, Who he's here. Me. Adam. Oh, okay, good. You're going to be impressed, Adam, when you see this. Oh, it's fucking crazy. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Hey, I had a question for you, Randall. You were talking about um the... Uh, underground water have you yeah. or anybody else tried to take dowsing rods out onto oh, yeah. sacred sites yes. how does how does that line up with the uh the placement well um to the limited extent that i've been able to do that there certainly seems to be confirmation there is actually some interesting scholarly work that had been done on it the uh, guy underwood who wrote pattern of the past would be a good source for somebody who wants to make the link between the geology of sacred sites and the the potential for um for dousing or geomancy, if you want to call it that, if that's your preference. Um, yeah, Guy Underwood, Pattern of the Past. I don't know if you can even still get that book. It may be very expensive. It may be available. I don't know. I My copy is decades old. But that was <laughs> well like one, one of the best sources for showing the link. He mostly looks in, in Europe, but uh, I think he also does... If I'm trying to remember, I think he's mostly focused on Europe and looking at the ancient sacred sites, the position of temples and cathedrals and things like that, and showing the relationship between those and the pattern of underground water. And his way was to first uh, make his first reconnaissance by by geomantic methods, then followed up by geological methods and geological confirmation. So... Um, but yeah, that would be something I would love to get back into. I experimented a little bit with it, and you know, I I had some experience with dowsing um, in my actually associated with my building in the um, very early days. I was building a boat barn out near the Chattahoochee River, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and it was a pole barn. And I had 15 telephone poles. They were perhaps 30 feet in length. And the plan was, as I just had built three vertical rows of five each. And then I was going to hang my, my, my framing, run my purlins and, uh, horizontally around there and then essentially build the barn around these 15 poles. Well, I called up Ma Bell, uh, Southern Bell back yes. then. This would have been the year 1975, summer of 1975. They charged $15 a phone pole to come out with their uh, their truck and their auger truck. They would dig the hole for you and then they would set the pole. Um, so I hired them. I called them and at, you know, $15 a, a, a hole and set the pole. That was a pretty good deal. Um, so they came out and what I had done, I had gone out there with my transit and had staked out where I, I had a stake driven at each of the 15 points where I wanted the pole set. So the truck pulls up and um, I see two guys with their Ma Bell uniforms on and then gets out of the backseat of this site 
uh, truck was this tall, skinny guy wearing overalls and a really old wrinkled hat. And he may had to have been at least six, four, six, five tall, skinny guy. And he gets out and he's carrying something. And I was over next to the building site and I was building a, 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 what was I building a garage? I was building something where this guy, he was part of the Woodruff family that was into Coca-Cola. So he had a lot of money and he, I think he was going to, we were building this thing so he could park all of his cars or something. And if we were building this, this, this building over, uh, you know, about a hundred feet away or so from where we were going to build the, the boat, uh, barn. Anyway, so this old guy, he gets down and he comes walking down there and sees where I have the stakes and I'm, I'm working away. And then I just pause to watch what he's doing. I who's this guy? He has this thing in his hand and it's, it looked like if I'm remembering right, it looked like maybe like a, you might picture like a flute case or something. He opens it up and it's was lined with some nice cloth and he takes out what I now know is two dousing rods. This, I had heard of water witching, but I had never actually seen or, or knew nothing about it, really. He takes out, and he's got just two metal swing rods, uh, dousing rods. And he goes over and then douses each of the 15 stakes that I had driven in the ground. And as he walks over it, he yells up to the guys at the truck, clear. Walks over the next one, clear. And at first... I got kind of self-conscious because I was thinking, are they just doing this to pull my leg or something or, <laughs> you know, but then, so then, okay, now he comes start walking towards me. Now I, I happen to know, I didn't know exactly where it was, but I knew at the time, because when we were dig digging, I wanted to make sure that I didn't cut into any of, of the, uh, the, the water main that came onto the site. Mm. So I had found out roughly where the water main was i didn't know exactly but i knew enough that if okay if i'm 50 feet over here I'm, i know i'm plenty safe right so i had kind of had an idea where the water main came into the property so this guy he comes walking he's got his swing rods holding them in front of him and he's walking in my direction all of a sudden as he steps over where i now know exactly where the water main was it literally looked like somebody grabbed the ends of those swing, swing rods swung them into an X and literally like bent them like they were under tension. And then he stepped over across and the two swing rods just totally relaxed and started kind of, you know, weaving back and forth like they had been doing. What he then did was he walked in a zigzag pattern and each time he stepped over where the water main was, it was the same thing again. And he's standing me, I'm standing looking at this thing and it's pretty amazing really. And then what does he do? He turns around, comes walking, he says, you want to try it? And, of course, I was self-conscious, and I could see the two guys up by the trucks kind of standing up there grinning, you know. But I said, sure. So I took him. I walked, and as I stepped over the water main, literally it felt like somebody had grabbed the awesome. ends of those things. Now, I have never had a response like that ever again. That really? first time, really, I don't know. It was like somebody grabbed them, they shot into an X, and I got the whole thing as I zigzag back and forth. Um, have you tried using metal rods afterwards? Oh yeah, I, I have. Cool. I've tried to use a variety of, and and I do get, I I'll get a response. But you know what? My thing is, is my confidence isn't high enough. I think yeah. what it is is, at that point, I was like so it was so unanticipated and so unexpected. I was in a frame of mind where, it because what it did, it caught me by surprise. You know, and so mm -hmm. I think that was part of it. It was so unexpected. I think maybe it was like my first psychedelic trip. I was like, hey, caught me totally by surprise. Yep. Um, anyways, 
you know, part of what I was very wanting to, much wanting to do was to be, have a means of going out and then, okay, so I get a response. What does this mean? How do I determine whether, in fact, that I'm actually finding there's water moving under here? So, it, you know, for me to, to have the confidence to do it, I would need to actually go out because that's the way my, my mind works. I want confirmation of things. I want evidence. And um, it's one of those things that's on my list. When I get back right. out there, you know, I'm going to buy this land one of these days coming up soon. If, if oh. my, and, now, uh, now one thing <laughs> I, I've been getting requests through the, uh, <laughs> through the chat and all of them are absolutely awesome. Oh my God. The amount of community we've got going on here, uh, is to start the, uh, the magical Egypt backup, because I know that, the, you know, even if we do one episode, we've done our, uh, we've done our mission, but still, holy shit. I have to come down there to Atlanta and experience this for myself because, dear God, Randall, brother, that sounds like an, an amazing time. You you have stories that equal mine, and I haven't even told most of mine on the air. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Can we, can we, can we just spend a couple minutes talking about the moon first? Oh, my God, yes. That That's, that, that's like the second top question we've gotten is the moon, believe it or not. Because as I recall, after our, our, well, I think we've had Randall on for about 12 hours of conversation now. But every time I think it's not to the last, like, 10 minutes that, you that, that we, we start talking about the moon. And we're, like, and we're always like, well, we'll get into that. We'll get into that next time. And, you know, I was, when I told Cameron and I, yeah, sure, I'll come over and get in conversation. That'll be a lot of fun, but. I hope nobody asks me about the moon. Dear, dear girl, Randall, you, you so, put the book out, take all my fucking money. Take all my money. Just throw it at you. Just put the book out. I just out. hope nobody asks Speaking me about money, the moon. Thanks for the donation, glip glop. <laughs> Randall, I'm very uh, intrigued now. If you don't want people to ask you about it, now now we've got to know. I do want people to ask me. What I want people oh. to do is to get, just go, go, go up to the, to the, edge of madness of curiosity that's what i want i want people to be motivated to go okay i'm going to put it out there i'm going to put it out in bits and pieces and if you're paying attention you'll see the bits and pieces and start putting it together but hey i put out a bunch of pieces here in the last what 30 minutes or so because if we get back to this idea of aliens that that was part of the whole thing earlier and this whole idea that see once you once you realize that on this planet could realistically be now, you know, tens of thousands of years old. And if you realize that, you know, again, this idea that there are these transmissions of there, there are these systems of knowledge clearly that have been transmitted through the generations, through the centuries, and sure, why not through the millennia? And if if we were see, we can use the analogy of our own civilization. If we were faced with a younger, driest type event. Mm. Now, what would we do? How Leave. what would be our Probably reaction like if we knew we wouldn't even if, know because the government wouldn't tell us? Leave or float well, above it. See, here's here's the cool thing is that when you realize that half of the comets out there are discovered by rank amateurs, yeah. mm-hmm. there's no way they can keep it secret. See, what what'll happen though is that you know we get blindsided, which you know there's not going to be much we can do about, or like in times past, uh, the sky changes. Something happens in the sky that attracts the attention of the whole world and now everybody's on the same page see because that's the one thing that can do it 
see, is if, if, if the sky becomes suddenly several orders of magnitude more active than it is normally and the way it has been, say, in our modern times, because in effect, our modern sky is somewhat anomalous because if we look at the sky in epochs past, we see that clearly now there's evidence that there was at times a whole lot more going on in the sky than has been uh, in recent times. That would be the kind of thing that would unify people, scare the shit out of them, but also inspire them to say, okay, look, if you want to try to preserve this thing that we've built, say, since the scientific enlightenment or since the renaissance, since, you know, the industrial revolution, we got to do this, we're going to have to pull together, or we're basically going to go back to the stone age. Because if a younger, driest type event happened today, we would most definitely be back in the Stone Age. And what you would be looking at is refugium. You'd be looking at scattered bands of survivors with no way of communicating with each other, no way of knowing that they weren't the only people left because there's no way to communicate with somebody who's 500 miles away when there's no intervening technology at all. Well, and, it, and you I, see, I, this, is, this is the planet of, of 11,000 years ago. It went through enormous concentrated changes. Now, if we knew that something was coming, if we knew that we would begin to begin to see the, the omens in the sky that were going to tell us, okay, guess what? We're entering an epoch now where the next thousand years, the sky is going to be extremely active. And those actions that we're witnessing in the sky are going to have consequences for us here down on Earth. Like, for example, we could be looking at a mass extinction level event which is exactly what we saw in the Younger Dryas, when, when half of the, the megafauna on the planet, the very top of the food chain, got decapitated. 50% of the megafauna of the planet did not survive this transition out of the Younger Dryas. And likewise, I think it's very plausible to say, well, neither did human civilization. Mm -hmm. Now, if we were faced with that today, basically, we, would do, we could do one of two things. We could try to take steps to prevent it, or we could take steps to try to survive it. If we were gonna to try to survive it, then what we would try to do is we would try to find a way of preserving as much of our science and technology and wisdom and so on that we had today, a way of preserving that. Okay, now an event happens. The Younger Dryas, the, 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 say the 12,900 year ago event happens when the black mat layer was laid down over the Northern Hemisphere, when the nanodiamonds, the billions of nanodiamonds rained down over the planet, when the skies went dark, um, when catastrophic firestorms consumed you know, whole states at a time, when the ice sheets began to melt and dump tens of thousands of cubic miles of water into the ocean instantaneously, virtually. The list goes on and on, right? What would we do? Well, for one thing, we would try to take plans to preserve as much as possible. And then once the event happened, where would we be? Well, at that point, you could see that there might be two types of survivors. Those <laughs> yeah. who survived because they were the luck, just because of the luck of the draw. Well, now those people are essentially going to be thrown right back to a Stone Age existence <laughs> and are going to be, well, uh, the two types of survivors. So you get those who survive because they're lucky, they're in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And however, there's, they're in a little pocket, a little refuge. They survive, but they are going to be uh, thrown back into a Stone Age existence and pretty much their whole post um, survival life is going to be focused around just continuing to survive. On the other hand, if you have people 
who survived because they actually planned to survive. And we see that reflected even modern today with the whole continuity of government concept, with the whole idea that going back to the 50s and 60s that, well, if um, you know there was a nuclear war, we'll make sure that the elite of society survives. And that's what uh, you know, Cheyenne Mountain and all of these things were for was that there would be places for the, you know, the leaders and the elites, however they're defined, to be able to take refuge and ride out this, the nuclear war. Well, if that same sort of thing happened again or happened back then, if we, if we use that as a model, we can see that, well, if people back 12,000, 13,000 years ago were faced with the same type of a scenario that we could now plausibly be faced with ourselves sometime in the future. And there's certainly nothing implausible about, because what have we seen already four times this year, we've had four near misses of asteroids, right? Is but, that an increase or is that just us getting better at observing? I honestly don't know. I hope it's just us getting better at observing. But if we take the models, the astronomical models of the British neocatastrophists, then what we, what, what we have to understand is that there are periods of this heightened activity, and it's cyclical. And that as, as Earth moves through space, it will enter zones that are more densely populated than at, at other times. And it is during those times of entering the zones of densely populated celestial debris that we are now the most vulnerable. And it is... This is, I think, a really how we can explain what happened 11 to 13,000 years ago is that Earth was in a zone, a, a very highly populated zone, and it probably suffered multiple impacts. Um, and this is something that would affect all the planets, too? Well, you know, yeah, the whole well, solar system. Is it a coincidence whole, that that's half a procession ago? No, I don't think that is, because I think that is the celestial clock, and that's part of the model that has been preserved for us, is the celestial mm. clock, that the, the tempo of these of these events and i think that what it tells us is that about every 6400 years we become vulnerable we enter a, a an active zone for maybe a millennia or two and then we enter a more quiet zone and then you know 6000 years ago we entered an active zone and and during that active time um there were consequences here below and once once the planet moved out of the active zone, and the, the geological response to the increased astronomical activity had subsided. At that point, now humans can restart the work of building civilization. But 13,000 years ago, the, the events were extreme enough that, you know, one would be probably um, thinking very seriously about being able to temporarily leave the planet if this, you know, if something like this happened again today. And the most obvious, and this is the only thing I'm going to say, and I'll go ahead and throw this out there, that for us today, the most obvious place to create a, a refuge in the event of a oh, repeat wow. of a Younger Dryas event would be the the little the ship that's anchored the moon. to the Earth, the Ark. The moon. Yeah, that thing that uh, has little hollow that spots thing, that in thing, extensive That cave thing systems. that hangs in our, in our night sky. The, the, the one thing that I've been hearing non-stop since we started this entire podcast which is when is randall going to talk about the moon <laughs> randall are you familiar Constantly. with a guy named don oh ecker? my god it's awesome i don't say the name again uh don ecker he is a uh, really into lunar anomalies and has done a lot of research on that um he has a podcast called dark matters radio really a uh, really knowledgeable guy if you yeah i might put him in touch with you over that uh moon research if you're interested 
Sure. Don Ecker got a little pissed off at me There's, one time because I started that. I started this podcast everybody. called Dark Matter, and I didn't. I didn't know that his existed prior to that. It, Art Bell Oops. had his own show before that, Dark Matter Radio. No, that was, that was after both of ours. Okay, well, okay. Yeah, Don has had that for many a year, Dark a long Matter time, and he's a smart man. But I'll say this: if anybody wants to know the central secret of the moon, go to Egypt, go to the Temple of Dendera. And look at the ceiling in the uh, pro style, because it's just basically within the last decade or so been the, has had the um, had the uh, charcoal cleaned off of it from all of the campfires that were in there, which was good because then the religious exactly. fanatics weren't able to deface the hieroglyphs. But what they have done is they have cleaned off the charcoal that has accumulated the thick layers of charcoal on the ceiling and exposed on the ceiling the entire story. And there it is. So, so Randall, are you perhaps saying that um, cyclically we go off planet and we are the aliens because we come and go? I did I say that? Not necessarily. Perhaps no, I, I just I inferred I, that. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say such a thing. Copy that. I could say There's that. No shit. way would I would I say anything like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So until we find like uh, a different variation of some American flag on the other side of the moon, <laughs> maybe well, some dead astronauts. Either way, I, I for one have been waiting for the Randall Carlson uh, moon book for quite a few years. And uh, I have to say is that I'm hoping that it will be as interesting as this conversation tonight, because you know what? Holy shit. Dear God in heaven, he's probably right. If not, completely right. When you start thinking about it, that's what you have to you have to think about it. And the more you think about it, the more you, you kind of go, why not? Well, Why that, not? You, you, why you, fucking not? Well, it ties up some loose ends yeah, that right? people have, I mean, people have thought that we've been on the moon, you know, back and forth forever. And your, your vision of why that could have happened, that makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, well, it's only logical. I mean, if we're talking about buildings that we can't build today with high technology and catastrophes that could wipe out Earth, and the logical explanation is to leave or stay and protect, and we have evidence of staying and protecting evidence, well, I mean, the other option seems just as viable to me, especially since we don't know how they built the shit they already built. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's clear that we're looking at technologies that we have not you know, that we have not utilized right. um, when we, there's many instances of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, that all over the world, these people are using some tech because it just makes no, I'm sorry. I don't care what your scholarly models are and how well, uh, you know, they have been uh, validated by, you know, groups of like-minded scholars thinking the same things over the, over the decades. The point is, is that it makes no sense for subsistence farmers or hunter gatherers and all over the world to repeatedly be doing this where they're suddenly moving these gigantic stones with impunity and assembling right. them into these astronomically oriented temples with sophisticated astronomy and geometry. I'm sorry, it just doesn't make sense. It's so completely out of context with our with our models of ancient history that I, I can't understand how a rational person looks at that. And and but but perhaps it's because. Within those models that have emerged out of the 19th century, there is a framework of global change that 
basically only allowed change to occur one grain of sand and one drop of water at a time. This is the gradualist model, the gradualist paradigm that has dominated thinking for almost two centuries now. And so when you start thinking about, um, you know, human history, and you don't understand that there have been these episodes of compressed change where the planet has, in effect, been completely remodeled, then you can kind of say, well, where are the potsherds? You know, where are the ruins of some civilization of 15 or 20 or 25,000 years ago? There it is. And look, and how did that get preserved? It was preserved by being buried. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the same way, in the same way against, like, I'll go back and use that analogy again, the nuclear war. How are we planning to preserve the the super hardened command and control centers, the missile silos, the bunkers, by going underground, by burying? We are doing shit. That's the thing. We are doing shit right now. When it came to Gobekli Tepe, whether it was religious, whether it was something that just came about as a uh, uh, like a, a, a throw out of whim, they buried that shit and said, okay, something's coming, and it did. We now are completely fucking unprepared for anything that's coming. We are in a shooting gallery right now, like Tunguska... Oop. Fucking yeah, yeah. Yo, Russia, that that proved that shit. We can get hit no matter what and completely get wiped out if it's large enough. What the fuck are well, we thinking? Yeah, well, it's not hyperbole, and I, I've said this repeatedly for years now. Literally, we are like sitting ducks in a mm-hmm. cosmic shooting gallery. We are. And to anybody who's paying attention, every month, couple of months, one of those big space rocks goes whizzing by. You know, February of 2014, one of them entered the atmosphere. Just a little prick, a little pinprick to remind us, but it's already been forgotten by the mass of the human population. I'm afraid what it's going to take blood is a Tunguska-sized event. Right. Tunguska-sized event, and also the recognition on the part of a number of things. Well, geologists can now say... Yeah, the whole the surface of this planet is bears the scars of uncountable dozens and dozens of cosmic encounters. It does. The 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 paleontologists can look and say, well, now we understand that the that the history of Earth on uh, of life on Earth has been a history of constant interruptions and setbacks, mass extinction events. Right. The astronomer now comes and says, well, look at this. We are. Our near-Earth space is way more populated with stuff than we had even imagined a few generations ago or a few decades ago. At the same time, we have the mythologists and and the the, the antiquarians and the ancient historians coming forward and saying, well, here, guess what? All over the planet, ancient peoples were obsessed with what was going on in the sky. And then we have the the British neocatastrophists who come forward with their work saying, yeah, we can now demonstrate that the incursion of material from outside the outer reaches of the solar system from the Kuiper disk is occurring on a cyclical basis that's governed by the motions of the four greater outer planets that regularly on a cyclical basis deliver material into the inner solar system. And in effect, here is the secret of the Holy Grail because it is the entry of these cosmic bodies, this cosmic spermatozoan that is coming in from the Kuiper disk into the inner solar system and bringing with it not only the agents of our destruction, but the agents of our recreation as well, because those comets are loaded with the catalysts that the biosphere speed feeds on 
to precipitate this accelerated evolution that occurs in the aftermath of the great catastrophes. I'd like to throw a question out to all of you guys and and listen. All of us who are on this conversation are are hip to the the woo-woo world of the internet and what people are speaking about. And of course, the last year or so, people have been talking about Antarctica. So oh God, and no. I don't have Please an answer. No. I don't have an answer. Jesus Christ. So I'm just no. Okay. Just let on. it happen. Go for it. <laughs> Fuck. Go for it. So I, listen, I'm not being skeptical. I'm not I'm not saying that I have I an proof, answer. Okay. Putting, one thing I'm gonna say before you go on there. If this is about that fucking tweet that John Glenn or fucking whoever had, he's tweeted like, oh, God, this tweet. That was Buzz Aldrin. Oh, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin. Okay. And I, no, that's, that's I not what I'm getting that, at. I'm just, de- okay, well, Chris, thing, Chris, maybe just let him there. finish his point. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. My point is, I, I, don't, I don't really have a point as much as I'm putting the subject out there for discussion because I'm just, uh, listen, nothing's off the table to me and I'm a curious person. So I just wanted to know from all of you whose opinions I respect and I find very interesting what your thoughts are on it, because I don't have a, listen, I don't have the answer and I, I'm just curious. What, what do you guys think, if anything is happening down there at the moment besides uh, climate change science, which is what we've been told. Can I, can I, can I chime in first? Okay. Hit me. Okay. Well, first of all, uh, Michael, thank you very much for bringing that up because it's actually something that took a lot of my time up. Uh, uh, Jimmy Church and I uh, actually got together and we, we talked about this information. He presented the uh, um, uh, Buzz Aldrin information with regards to the uh, Antarctic goings on there. Well, I think that has been debunked. I mean, he was no, down no, there totally. and he left because he was ill, but, the, but the, the tweet itself was debunked. No, don't, t- totally. I debunked that based on a graphic designer's eye. That was 100% false. That that's the only thing that I've got to be able to say there. When Buzz Aldrin went down there and said, "Oh, there's evil down there," like hundred percent fucking fake. Beyond that, I've got nothing else. But that tweet, hundred percent one, not real. Agreed. Anyone I else? think it's uh, pyramids. I think they're gonna figure out that that shit was uh, warmer one day, and that there's civilization under the ice. Long, long lost civilization. I hope you're right. That would be awesome. For sure. Randall? uh, Yes, I was thinking about Antarctica, and the only thing I have to contribute is that it does seem to be accumulating mass. The second thing is there's also evidence of um, mega flood melting events around the perimeter um, that perhaps might be a clue to where one might look to. And clearly, I mean, I, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Piri Rias and Orontius Phineas yeah. maps. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. showing, I mean, you know, those are apparently copies of much older maps, which are probably copies of even older maps. Mm. Um, and I think if we go back into the late Pleistocene, we may, or or perhaps during the, what what is known as the hypsothermal or climatic optimum, which was between roughly seven and 9,000 years ago, which was a, a, a period of, uh, of pretty intense global warmth where all, virtually all of the evidence suggests that the planet was at least a degree, maybe two degrees warmer than now. Um, and I were actually going to be contributing something on that. I'm doing a article, another article for the site right now that's going to be on basically uh, global change during the Holocene, what has happened to the planet post-Younger Dryas. Um, but anyways, there was a period of roughly two to 3,000 years of, of intensified global warmth, and it may very well have uh, been accompanied by a major recession of the Antarctic ice margin, and there may have been a coastal civilization that 
was there for a while. Now, this isn't completely implausible. No, um, what are the chances it, of that being better preserved up there uh, after a catastrophe? Is there any uh, geologic evidence for that? Well, given that it appears that the northern hemisphere suffered the greatest habitat loss, which you know, essentially, if you pa- if you if you map the uh, the geography of the mortality of species, what you interestingly find is that the greatest uh, mortality of species at the end of the uh, you know during the Younger Dryas was North America. Uh, South America was a close second. Europe and Asia was in a roughly lost about a third of its species. Africa only lost 10%. The subcontinent of India only lost about 10% of its species. So it seems like the Southern hemisphere and the Eastern hemisphere would have been on the opposite side of the earth during the worst pummeling. And North America would have been essentially facing right into the onslaught. And um, so if you look at that pattern, Antarctica might've been actually on the, safer side of the planet to be on at the time. Um, mm-hmm. and, and clearly Antarctica has been a pretty much, a much more dynamic place than, than the older models would suggest. Um, but at this point, I'm not prepared to stick my neck out and say that I think that there was an ancient civilization there. I'm just saying that it's possible. It's, it's possible, um, that there could have been a, a, a very different climate there, even not so long ago, even, you know, like in the Neolithic, to Mesolithic times, which would have been the seven to nine thousand years ago, if the Antarctic ice cap did go undergo a um, major recession during the climatic optimum of that period, yeah, it might have been a place to colonize. It might have been a place one could build a city. I don't know. However, the onset of a of a glacier um, is usually going to destroy anything in its path. That's the problem. Um, so if you had, even if you had buildings there, buildings of masonry, the onset of a glacier, you know, would pretty much erase whatever. Just grind made. that shit up. Just grind that shit up. Yeah, exactly. Because you figure, okay, look at the Great Pyramid in Egypt. It's 400 feet high, 482 feet high, right? But the North yeah. American, the, the Laurentide Ice Sheet over North America up by Hudson Bay was two miles thick. So... You know, whatever might have been there during the last interglacial, which would have been about the actually the technical term would be interstadial, but wiped but we don't fucking need, clean. Wiped clean, yeah. I mean, because there was a period of time between roughly thirty-five and forty-five thousand years ago when apparently the ice mass was for the most part gone. And which is interesting because 30, 40, 50 years ago it was assumed that the ice mass was intact for at least 100,000 years. But it definitely does not appear that way now. It appears that there were at least a couple of episodes within the last 100,000 years where the ice was mostly or wholly gone, and then it came back again. The problem with that is, and why it's the, the, the main obstacle to accepting that possibility, is simply the rapidity with which those changes need to take place. But hey, look, if you go up by the Hudson Bay, and you dig it, you take up a core, and you look in that core, and you go back and you date pollen that's 40,000 years old, and that pollen is from a spruce forest. Well, wait a second. If there was a spruce forest growing there 40,000 years ago, then obviously it wasn't under two miles of ice. Mm-hmm. But then 20,000 years ago, it is. It's under two miles of ice. So, see, there's the problem. 
See, there's something driving climate into and out of ice ages, and we still don't know what it is. And just when they thought they had it figured out what it is, oh, it's the Milankovitch cycles. Well, yeah, Milankovitch cycles certainly do affect the climate of the Earth, no doubt. But they're not driving the climate of the planet into a glacial age and out of a glacial age in a thousand years or less. And that's what we see now happening. So That's going to be rocks. Well, it could be a number of things. It could be there could be a number of things. It's sometimes actually uh, a confluence of things that creates a perfect storm. I think volcanoes, you know, because there's clearly episodic evidence for episodic volcanic eruptions. But now that may be a response to changes in the cosmic environment. But clearly, when we go back to this idea of cyclical change within the cosmic environment, that could be driving. We do know that, for example, during the last deglaciation, there were enormous uh, volcanic eruptions around the planet. I have some very interesting pictures of where you can see massive layers of volcanic ash sandwiched in between gigantic uh, back flood sediments. And uh, wow. the story is very, pretty much unambiguous. You see, okay, here's a gigantic backwash sediment that would have been created by a flood that's, you know, maybe 20 times, 10 or 20 times the flow of all combined rivers on Earth today. And then sandwiched in these, between these layers are layer uh, uh, of, of sediment, which are called rhythmites, is volcanic ash, thick layers of volcanic ash. So right there you see, okay, during the floods, you had massive volcanic eruptions. After the floods were finally over, and you look at the topmost layer of these flood-deposited sediments, what you typically will see, and I've, I've documented this from Washington to, to, to Ohio, and up and down the Mississippi River, you can see anywhere from three feet to six feet up to 20 or 30 feet of loss. And loss is a very strange type of soil, sediment, um, whose origin has been debated literally for a couple of hundred years. And you find these deposits, like, um, I wish we had some pictures up. I could show you pictures of where you see these <laughs> these massive flood rhythmites. S send and over the top Skype, I'll, I'll, I'll post them. Well, just, just Google it right quick. L-O-E-S-S. Lust. Well, I was going to show them the picture of Burlingame Gully, where I've taken pictures of the flood layers oh, capped see. by six feet of lust. I can throw it on a hard drive. Give me a little. Or a I, I can do that, yeah. I, yeah. So give me well, like two minutes. What, what you see there, though, is you have these sedimentary layers these that are, you know, six, eight, ten feet thick. They grade up to about two or three feet thick. And then on top of it, you've got this six-foot layer of loss. And the six-foot layer of loss is the stuff that, in effect, was that, that came out of the horizon. It came out of, the, I mean, sorry, came out of the atmosphere post-flood. And, and what the loss tells us is that the... Um, that the time, the duration, that uh, while the floods are at their peak, essentially the atmosphere would have been totally opaque. You wouldn't have been able to have seen your hand in front of your face. So that would be one of the problems with, you know, if there were survivors who could actually witness this because of the fact that there was so much going on in the atmosphere that you would, for one thing, you wouldn't have been able to breathe over large sections. The other interesting thing is, is when you analyze the chemical constituents of the LUS, it does seem that there is a high component of extraterrestrial material dispersed through it, which does suggest that there might be a consistency in the origin of LUS with aerial, aerial burst type phenomena, such as we saw in 1908 with Tunguska mm -hmm. and such as we saw in uh, February of 2014 in Chelyabinsk. Because when you have this incursion of cosmic debris, if it's smaller than say 100 to 200 to 300 feet in diameter, unless it's iron, it's gonna explode in the atmosphere. And if you have a multiple impact event, 
where you have perhaps a thousand or ten thousand or more Tunguska events all happening simultaneously, the atmosphere is going to get completely overloaded. And so the lust that's on top of the flood sediments is evidence that there was this overloading of the atmosphere with this material. And I think Cameron has gone off. I might be able to pull up a, a, an image and send it to you guys, and you, you can post it so people can see what I'm talking about. On demand. On demand. Let's see. Let's see here. I'll, I've got what should have one right here that I can pull up. I'll tell you what, Randall, you are scaring the bejesus out of me. <laughs> tying, tying this to the first podcast with uh, Dr. Robert Schock and you guys talking about possible uh, ties to an electric universe theory. And I know I've seen that, you know, background radi uh, gamma radiation can kind of show the threads between galaxies. And if we're talking about this, the possibility that there could be mass gathering along sort of some sort of like electrical field that also affects the sun at the same time. It's frightening to think that we could have mass coronal discharge and like thousands of Tunguska-like events. Like uh, that's it's, well, it's almost unthinkable. Well, <laughs> I, I've been hesitating to go there, but there are there's a lot of evidence uh, uh, um, emerging that would suggest that we are looking at something that may have involved the entire solar system. In other words, the the entire solar system may have entered a zone of space in its uh, journey around the galaxy that would have completely altered the cosmic environment for a couple of thousand years. That is completely not out of the, out of the realm of possibility. The universe could be fucking infinite, and we think that we can identify all the rocks. <laughs> yeah, Cameron's giving me a drive here. I'm going to load up a few images, and we'll send them to you guys. Oh yeah, here here's a good. Check this out. Oh man. All right, I'm going to send you guys some juicy stuff. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, oh. If you can handle it. Well, here's the thing. I created this show specifically to get to this point. So take the time you need, Randall. No problem. Oh, okay. I'm working on it here. Uh, let's see. Got to find a vacant port. Yeah, so does anybody know if there is any uh, sort of serious outward-looking uh, research being done to identify uh, things like this? I kind of think back to, like, uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Raman having some sort of, like, uh, outward-facing uh, nuclear-penetrating radar or something. I know Graham Hancock has uh, uh, indicated some research that he's put forward over the last couple of days with regards to, uh, you know, this type of research but I, I can't say for sure I think in the terms of like near earth objects I mean I think it's poorly funded at least I had a buddy who used to kind of work for a contractor that worked with NASA and in the mid 2000s that was part of what they did but it seemed like at the time they just couldn't get any fucking money for it so it's like they were vastly underfunded and uh, you know I don't they, know they are they're vast, vastly underfunded and that's why, again, like I said earlier, I think it's probably going to take uh, it's going to probably take a kick in the seat of the pants for sure. people to wake up and stop obsessing over the the trivia that most people's consciousness is filled with. Right, um, man. I hope it's just a kick in the pants. I mean, it could just be a complete like boot on the ant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope that it's not going to be a repeat of what happened. You know, the younger Dryas event. I don't think it's going to be. I, I seriously don't. I think that that was once in, 
you know, I think that what happened then was probably from my research would suggest it may have been like the worst event to assault this planet in the last 5 million years. Cause we have to go mm. back about 5 million years ago to find an equivalent loss of species on a planetary scale comparable to what happened at the younger Dryas. So, um, but, but that certainly doesn't let us off the hook because when you consider that the Tunguska event was the equivalent of a 15 megaton hydrogen bomb, that's, that's a, that's a major metropolitan area city buster bomb, you know, that could take out any major city in the U S Washington, DC, Atlanta, you know, New York city, twin cities, LA, a 15 megaton bomb is going to pretty much erase that city. Tunguska was about a 15 megaton bomb. Now, we may be looking at episodes where Earth is undergoing assaults by multiple Tunguskas. And if the British neocatastrophists are right, and so far 30 years of their predictions and writings have pretty much confirmed that they are right on the money, there may be episodes in the history of this planet where literally we get bombarded uh, uh, by hundreds, if not thousands, of Tunguska objects. If, and see, this is the whole point, is that Tunguska was almost certainly part of the Torrid meteor stream. It was mm -hmm. the perfect time of day. Mm -hmm. The radiant point that it came out of from space was exactly where it needed to be to be a member of the, of the uh, summertime Torrids, right? Because the Earth crosses the Torrid meteor stream twice each year, once right around late no October, early November. This is why they're called the, the Halloween meteors. And again, in late uh, June, early July. And this was exactly when the, the Tunguska object came into Earth's atmosphere, was at the peak of the Torrid meteor shower. And where it came from, out of the sky, was precisely where it needed to be to have been a member of that stream. Now, what the British neocatastrophists are saying is that that this the Torrid meteor stream, which now has spawned at least two known comets, Oljato and Anki, um, several asteroids and several meteor streams, was all the progeny of one great giant comet that came into the inner solar system probably around 26,000 years ago, about one processional cycle ago, and began to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations and began to litter the inner solar system with the byproducts of its disintegration and that on multiple period periods, the earth would enter the zones where this matter is streaming around the sun. And during those episodes, we would be subjected to a uh, much greater probability of bombardment. And that within the stream, there would be points where there'd be places where the material was more densely concentrated because as, as a, Meteor stream ages, what happens is the, media, the material in it becomes much more diffuse and spread evenly throughout the stream. But in the early days of a cometary disintegration, most of the material is going to be concentrated in pockets. So it depends not only on when you're crossing the stream, but where in the stream you're crossing, where in the stream mm -hmm. is, the, is the densest concentration of material when you're crossing it. So if the Earth is crossing the stream at the time that, that the greatest density of material is there, then obviously you can see that the possibility of getting struck is going to be much higher. And the action in the sky that he, people are going to be witnessing is going to be much more intense. And of course, when people all over the world are simultaneously witnessing things like this, well, here's how you could really, in effect, unify the global consciousness around, look, we got to do this work. In order to predict this stuff, we have to create some kind of an infrastructure that allows us to make these predictions, to track celestial motion. 
And how can we do this using primitive materials with a limited uh, labor supply that, and we don't have, you know, uh, an, a global infrastructure like we do now. Uh, so what do we do? Well, we begin to quarry rocks and we begin to set up these stone structures to mark the passage of the sun and the moon and then lay out the five parameters that are necessary for the prediction of all celestial motion. So there you have a motive. You know, you have the incentive is that all the people on the planet are witnessing a much, much more active sky. And if you've ever been out and watched, you know, you know, fireballs and meteorite phenomena, just for example, to go out and see the Leonids or, or the Geminids and, and see how impressive and awesome that can be. And then you try to imagine what it might be like to see uh, something on the scale of uh, even the Leonid shower that, you know, there was a couple of them that came up in the 19th century where people were seeing a thousand, you know, a thousand meteors in a minute. I mean, what would that be like? And then if wow. these things are entering the atmosphere and creating not only visible phenomena, but diaphonic phenomena also, you know, is because one of the interesting things about when you go in and you read uh, the, the eyewitness accounts of the Tunguska event, that one event, the energy was so great, it actually entered the earth. And 500 miles away from the epicenter, people were describing what they said. It sounded like freight trains moving under the ground beneath them as the shockwave emanated out. Now, this thing exploded five miles up in the atmosphere, right? But the shockwave was felt in the ground. People said they heard people who were too far away to have heard or seen the explosion itself, which actually was audible up to a thousand miles away. They described how they felt the passage of some great force moving under the ground underneath them. So can you imagine what the experiences would be like if people were witnessing not only one event like that, but multiple events? What that would do to the human consciousness of the people of this planet if, if say, over a period of 24 or 36 or 40 or so hours, we were passing through the dense part of a stream and Earth was assaulted by 100 or 500 or 1,000 Tunguska-like events. This is not at all out of the realm of possibility. Wow. But And when you realize that sort of thing has been part of the history of this planet and undoubtedly part of the history of civilization on this planet, it puts a whole different context on our, the human story and, and opens the door to the possibility the probability of a deep history that we've only just barely begun to fathom, which is the real story of, of the human presence on planet earth. How close are we to this, uh, uh, cycle repeating itself? Well, um, this weekend, <laughs> if no, probably not this weekend, probably not till next month sometime. Dang. My birthday. When's your when's your birthday, Darren? The tenth. Oh, of March. Okay, that's right. Pisces. Okay. Pisces. Yeah, I'm the twenty sixth. Um, well, let let me put it to you this way. Okay, if 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 we look back in the history of global change, you know, the Holocene now is is well over ten thousand years in in duration. The Holocene seems to be about as long as any period of relative climatic and environmental stability that we've seen in the last quarter million years. Most of the periods of interglacial warmth have not lasted more than four or five or 6,000 years. On the other hand, if we 
go from, from modern hard science and we look at the archaic traditions, we see the model of the great year that would suggest that on average about every 6,500 years or so, um, the potential for a, a discontinuous event, a non-linearity, the potential for a non-linearity goes up by a couple of orders of magnitude. So if if there's any veracity to that particular model, one might think that, yeah, we're probably entering a time like that right now. In fact, maybe the, the precursor to that may have been the Little Ice Age, because it's very possible that the Little Ice mm. Age was brought on by an incursion of, of, of greater material in the celestial environment that began around 1300. Mm-hmm. And then, and then dissipated during the mid 1600s. Then came back with a vengeance for a couple of centuries, and then began to clear out again about the middle of the 19th century. But you know, it's hard to say. Uh, but I think the main thing is that we need to become cosmically aware, just like our ancestors were, and start paying attention. And when shit happens, and you know, there's a, another near miss, which there will be another one in the news before very long. People go, oh, yeah, hey, these are the shots across the bow. This is the cosmos trying to get our attention and telling us, hey, wake the fuck up, people. You know, mm-hmm. look at what's going on over your heads. Because it's not all just about what, you know, what what's. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, bullshit well. that, we're, that we're being suffocated in. Okay, I got to get some, some pictures over to you guys. Uh, Cameron, let's see what what. Uh... This is actually fantastic time to be able to plug the. Uh, uh, you know, Thank you. Thank you. Like all, all of the fantastic gifts that we have going on here. Holy shit! Perfect. <clears throat> yeah. It, oh my god, brother, my god, dear god, I, I have to take a trip down to where you live in Atlanta, just so you can like show me all of this and just like sit down, have some coffee, and talk this shit out. Because oh my god, my mind's been blown for the last half an hour, to an hour. Holy shit. Like totally. Okay. Um. So yes, if, if you were listening to this program right now, uh, first of all, uh, you can do- donate to the John Anthony West Project Cancer Fight Companion to uh, uh, go to denoflore.com uh, forward slash WPP and donate via PayPal to the uh, John Anthony West uh, Fight for Cancer. Uh, or you can go just Google John Anthony West Project Fundly, and you can find uh, the Fundly campaign, or go to fundly.com forward slash John. Is this what you had on there? Dash yes, that's Anthony okay. dash West dash project.com. Like, just put that in, you'll be fine. Uh, Gramerica is throwing in some perks. I'm throwing in some perks. Uh, Gram- uh, Darren, are you there? Yo, uh, do you want to uh, describe the perks that uh, Gramerica is throwing in for the show? And jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, nice. we're gonna do. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna do. <laughs> if you donate uh, two hundred bucks and email me, and you want to come on the show, we'll let you come on the show, and you can pick someone as brilliant as Randall and come on and interview him with us. That's pretty damn cool. And with uh, Den of Lore, it's uh, 150 bucks per episode. You want up to like one episode, 150 bucks. Two episodes, 300 bucks. Four episodes, 450 bucks. And you can do the same. Um, 
beyond that, I know that uh, Sacred Geometry International is offering a ton of perks for uh, donating donating to John Anthony West's uh, cancer research. Oh my God, dear God in heaven, uh, Cameron, we're gonna get you to, like to be able to describe these in a second, but sure, still. Sure. Uh, I, I know like we at Den of Lore, if you like anywhere from 150 to 450, come on, you pick the guest. We will bring them on the air. Uh, in addition to that, Edward Nightingale, you can get a $144 signed copy of his latest book. And I know that's, um, with the Jimmy Church show, Fate to Black, <laughs> one of my favorite podcasts slash radio shows 50 bucks will get you a shout out on fate to black email either info at den of lore.com or sacred geometry international at gmail.com for all of that information if you want to be able to get uh, that shout out in addition to that uh 250 dollars will get you a free signed copy of the sacred key uh traveler's key rather uh, that is a john anthony west uh book from over the last couple of years, it's one of the top books for sacred and uh, uh, symbolist knowledge for Egypt and, <clears throat> excuse me, Cameron? Yes, sir. Uh, the uh, symbolist key, actually, or traveler's key, it's one of the uh, top symbolists. That's what I've heard, but I've not actually ever read that. What do you, uh, what do you guys think a hand job be worth? <laughs> to who? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me, Darren. You sound like the kind of guy that might uh, seek that out occasionally. Bucks. I thought that was a do it yourself. <laughs> we all we've all heard the tales of Darren and his hand job hunts. The links this man will go to get off. Jesus, That's how I got through college. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've seen you. Don't quit something you're good at. Oh my god! Sorry, guys. <laughs> for two hundred for two hundred fifty dollars. Sorry for weird in the show. <laughs> oh, we're just talking around. <laughs> for two, we we're talking. Around, I was like, Randall, you never saw airplane. <laughs> that blew my mind as much as everything else he said tonight. Surely you're kidding. For two hundred fifty dollars, the uh, traveler's key. It's uh, one of 200 copies available. It's uh, widely acknowledged as one of the best guides to simplest Egypt's ever published, period. For 500 bucks, you get a limited edition uh, autographed silver uh, gelatin portrait of John Anthony West. If you donate $5,000, you get a weekend with John Anthony West. You get a 22-foot uh, air airstream, which is basically this very luxury... Um, uh, the camper that gets caravan. <laughs> Thank you very much. That gets uh, uh, sided right, bus- right beside uh, John Anthony West's uh, uh, famous uh, cabin, right in the Socrates Mountains. Oh, oh my God! If <laughs> if you've listened to to any of John Anthony West podcasts, um, if you've watched Magical Egypt, you want this uh, show. Uh, finally, there is a ten thousand uh, dollar prize, which. Uh, is an ex- exclusive dinner with John Anthony West, uh, Graham Hancock, uh, and a variety of different personalities who are available. And this is going to be available in the next like three to five days. Uh, it it is a placeholder prize, so if if you want to be able to donate 
anywhere between five and ten thousand or more, let me know. I will get a hold of the uh, people behind uh, John John Anthony West Project uh, to be able to get this out there, and we will get you that dinner if at all possible. And it uh, will be one hundred percent the most stimulating dinner you will ever have. Unless you're with the hand jobs. Oh my god. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, check out our uh, chat with John Anthony West if you want. It's uh, grammarica.ca slash EP151. And I can speak to that. I actually watched uh, part of that today and thoroughly enjoyed it. Part of what? Oh, Your the show. episode? Your show. Oh, cool. Yeah, I watched it today. Oh, right on. Did you like I it? I not. Yeah, Hell yeah, I liked it. Yes. I like your style, man. You're laid back, and uh, but you get you get the goods. Oh, cool! That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Did we find the pictures? Uh, one second here. I'm just waiting for them from uh, Randall. You know, here's what happens. He's got movie, he... movie star Michael picks. <laughs> here's what we got. We got uh, Randall going through his program and selecting a slew of images. And so, if you guys want to keep going. He can lay it on you, uh, no doubt about it. And uh, it may just take another 10 minutes or so. No, this is the last one. Last one? Oh, I stand corrected. He's got the last one. How many uh, slides you got coming for us here? Oh, about somewhere between 12 and 13,000. Excellent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, Randall, anytime. Guys, <laughs> we're going to need a lot of alpha brain, some herba mate, enemas. Uh, what else are we up for? Oh, the, the Glenfiddich has to be, has not been uh, doing me very well right now, but still. <laughs> we needed some kind of drinking game, but let's see. So, Graham, or this is Graham. Darren, Darren, what's your poison, man? You're a pothead, right? Like, Yeah, I don't drink. No. Once in a while, I don't mind drinking. It's not like a hard rule or anything, but I prefer not to get drunk. Is that because you're always high and if you mix alcohol and weed? No, I, I used to drink a lot back in the day, and you know that used to lead to smelling the cocaine roses and you know all sorts <laughs> of terrible things. So I just once I had kids, I just gave it up. You know, I smoke my weed and be happy and Excellent. never hung over. Kids don't really let you sleep too late, so you don't want to be fucking hung over. Yeah, uh, good man. How what, how big is your family now? Uh, well, I got two kids, yeah, wife and two kids, five and three, so I'm fairly busy. Reminds me of Brandon. I think he's got a he's got two boys, and I think one is four, and the other's maybe only a year old now. One's Brandon, you sick, still there? Actually, one's going to be homeschooled, probably. I think they're both going to start homeschool here nice. next year. That's Good fantastic. You, that that always warms my heart, man, to hear that there's parents taking their children out of the system, off the grid. You know, let them let them uh, have some faith. Let them evolve naturally. Don't force them to conform to something like commoner core, like what we have here in the states. It's ridiculous. Stop drinking the Kool Aid. Stop drinking no, the Kool Aid. Right. They both did preschool, and my my oldest is in like nature kindergarten right now. But that's they're trying to get it extended to grade three. But right now, like after kindergarten, that's it. You know, they expect you to just go into the public school system or the the private wait school. Wait till Trudeau system. gets a hold of it. Trudeau, yeah, fuck Trudeau. But uh, boy wonder. Don't get me started. Boy wonder, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh God, never. Isn't he like Castro's illegitimate son, though? I mean, oh Jesus uh, Christ! If you look at the pictures, he is a dead ringer. 
No, you guys are weird. No, I'm sorry. I mean, the 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 bullshit was debunked. Are you guys for real on that? If you guys still have a queen, uh, anything's no, possible, right? He's oh, probably actually Castro's son. If you if you just Google pictures of Trudeau and Castro, the oh, resemblance shit. is beyond no, no, striking. That. There's okay. Listen, there's here's pictures thing. of Castro. I'm thinking about anywhere in government for this shit. Here's the thing with Trudeau. He is not Castro's son, but he is still a fucking. Okay, let's roll with that. No, okay, no, no he is still a trust fund like, baby, fucking silver spoon motherfucker who does not understand the plight of the average Canadian. Fuck Trudeau. Two jobs before becoming prime minister were bouncer and fucking. Listen, and what, what was the other one? Is he was a substitute drama teacher, which brings me to my my answer to Trump's mega "Make America Great Again" is M T A D T A. Make Trudeau a drama teacher again. Well, either way, here's the thing: we're still not saying like like make like like make O'Leary the fucking prime minister. Fuck O'Leary. Fuck O'Leary in the fucking ass because he's still. I'm gonna still, be the prime minister one day. Oh, he will. He probably will be. That's the fucking sad part. But he's still. No, I will. Well, no, Jesus Christ, if you run, I will fucking vote for you. Holy shit. But still, <laughs> like, the, the amount of bullshit we have in the fucking Canadian politics right now is is absolutely insane. we got a social justice fucking warrior in power right now as prime minister. We've got a, a bunch of, like, far-right fucking wingers uh, trying to vie for the conservative nomination. And, uh, uh, like, O'Leary, who is, like, the darling motherfucker who was on CBC and Dragon's Den and all this bullshit, who doesn't fucking understand shit because he's been a billionaire after cheating out millions of fucking people with his last fucking software company to try yeah, I'm gonna start, to, to start to, to run for something, I think, when I'm, like, 50. Or I'm going to move to the States, one of the two. If, you, if the States get their shit together, I'm fucking out of here. <laughs> so you're saying like get rid of trump uh, no no i don't mean <laughs> that i mean the, the states doesn't mean need to do much i mean like i still think like the pacific northwest is part of the you know like that's probably the part of the most free country left on the planet other than like lebanon or you know these like you know countries that we're supposed to think are shitholes but are actually probably have you know 10 times as many freedoms as we have here. Chris, I don't mean to be a party killer, but I'm going to have to bounce, brother. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation tonight, and it, it has been a pleasure and an honor to join you guys. Go for it, brother. No problem. Gentlemen, have a good evening, and uh, I hope we raise a lot of money for John Anthony West. Absolutely. It was nice to meet you. Take care, guys. Take care. Good. Good evening. Uh, so, Cameron, um, just uh, sliding that out there, but uh, still. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Darren, please describe your uh, <laughs> soon-to-be political campaign. I don't have one yet. I gotta wait. I gotta wait a few years <laughs> to let the dust settle. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll I gotta wait till my kids move out. So, um, how, so how probably like that? twenty years. 15, 20 years. Oh, Jesus Christ in heaven. <clears throat> um, I'm too young anyway. I don't. I think you have to be a certain age, don't you? I'm only fucking 35. You're only 35? Yeah, I think you got to be like at least, it might even just be 36, but I got way too much going on right now. You know, I'll wait until, it seems like my, my, my past is, you know, shit like that's being less and less of a problem these days. But I'll start probably by just like running for 
town council or locally or possibly like, you know, like an MP seat or whatever the fuck they are, you know? You're going to be like Hunter S. Thompson. And whatever. Or maybe I won't, you know, but it's definitely something I've thought more about lately. Is instead of just constantly bitching about it, maybe, you know, going out there and. Yeah, why not? Like if we if we uh, get groups of people that we trust and uh, who have similar ambitions philosophically, what what couldn't we accomplish if we're persistent and uh, reasonable and uh, well connected? So let's see. Um, Randall's got some slides. Are you guys ready to see these over here? Do you mind if I go ahead and share screen uh, there, Chris? Uh, go for it. Okay, right on. So let me hide my porn. <laughs> what kind of porn you watching? Just kidding. Uh, mostly midgets these days. Go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 fucking feel, I feel that. You feel that? Here we go. Can you guys see this okay? Uh, are, you, are you guys seeing this? Are you seeing this? Uh, oh, here we uh, go. Uh, Voila. Not quite. Oh, there we go. One second. <laughs> It's mostly midgets.com. We get a we get a sponsorship money from them. It's Gnosis Podcast for a sponsor. Mostly midgets.com. Perfect. Excellent. Is that like Nirvana Unplugged I hear? What? <laughs> that sounded like the intro to Nirvana Unplugged in New York. <laughs> I don't know why that makes you laugh, but it's I'm trying to remember I think I heard that album once and I was just I, I that was all I could take. It's like, man, this is right. like, this are man's you, in pain. Are you guys seeing this? Uh, one I am seeing that. Is, that. is that Grand Coulee? No, that's Burlingame Gully. Uh, look, first of all, look carefully, and you'll notice the layers, the rhythmical layers, right? Do you see that? Yes. Okay, are we're we, seeing that right now. Are we looking at the same thing? Yes, we are. Okay. Reminds me of James' there's mom. A, there's about 40 <laughs> of those rhythmical layers right there. Now, what those are, is backwash sediments. Does that make sense? You know what? A, like during a major flood, you're going to have the trunk valley, the main river valley, let's say, gets flooded. A huge picture, if you will, a tsunami moving down a river valley. And as it moves down the river valley, any tributary rivers coming in from the sides, that flood is going to backwash up into those tributaries. Does that make sense? If, yeah, if kind the, of, so it's like swirling at the back there as it comes over? What it is, is if, picture a, a trough, a river valley, with smaller troughs coming in on the side. Now you turn on the water and it's gushing down the main trough, but what happens is, is it comes into where the tributaries come in, that water back floods up those tributaries while the main trough is filled, the main channel, the main river valley. Once the main river valley clears out and the water level drops, and you can see this during pretty much any flood, even on a small scale today, then those tributaries in turn will drain, right? And what you're seeing here is the, is the backwash. If you look very carefully at the top, you'll notice that throughout the whole 40 layers, the orientation is more or less horizontal, isn't it? But when you get to the top, there's a six-foot layer where it's more vertically oriented. And Cameron will go to the next slide. No, the, there. Now what you're, we're seeing here is you can see how this gully is part of the greater landscape. And basically what you're looking at here is you see the hills in the distance. 
we're looking at an entire basin that has been subject to this these backwash floods that have come in, um, washing in and then flowing out and then washing back in. You could kind of almost think of this back and forth sloshing of this these giant flood waves. Each time a flood wave comes in, it puts down a thick layer of mud, and each time it flows back out. So it comes in, reverses direction, and flows out. When it flows out, it's left a layer of mud. And you can see that in this case, it did that about 40 times. Then when it was all done, the stuff that was in the atmosphere filtered down and came down and landed on top of the topmost layer of backwash flood sediments, which at the time would have been nothing but just a sea of barren mud. You see, it's almost as far as the eye can see. And you can see here all these rolling hills of this landscape are part are composed of these giant backwash floods. But let's see, Cameron, go to the okay. Now, I was saying earlier that if you get down and you start examining some of these layers, what you'll find in there is volcanic ash. And that's what we're looking at right here in this image. You see the white streaks? That's volcanic ash, which interestingly, in this case, came from Mount St. Helens. And because of the distance to Mount St. Helens, the amount of ash that's preserved between these flood layer sediments, it tells us that there was a whole lot of volcanic ash in the atmosphere that was coming down and getting preserved, sandwiched in between these flood layers. Go to the, let's see. Go to the next one, next, go one more. Okay, now if you look at this one, you can see very clearly. This is Now this is coming east about 500 miles to Ohio. This is a tributary of the Ohio River. And what you're going to see is these sweeping beds that were created. You have to picture large-scale, very sediment-laden water sloshing back and forth through these valleys. And when the water finally drains off, what it does is it leaves a sedimentary architecture like you're seeing right here. And you can see these, what's called festoon bedding, which is these sweeping beds. But then you get up right towards the top, and you see that vertically oriented stuff at the top with the, with the vertical lines in it? That's the loss. And that's the stuff that was in the atmosphere that came out, that precipitated or filtered out of the atmosphere after the last flood layer was laid down. And you can see this stuff reaching all the way from Ohio to Washington State, which is where the other flood where the other slide was and it's this stuff that is the very interesting mysterious stuff that nobody has been the argument has been was it water laid or wind deposited and the answer is it was both because what you have to picture here is that the lust comes down in effect as a gigantic rain of mud and that's what you're seeing here and that rain of mud is loaded with the debris of exploding extraterrestrial objects and that's how they've never quite put, put it all together to understand the origin of Luss. But there it is, and you can see it. And this, this picture here is, is from, taking, like I said, a tributary to the Ohio River in the state of Ohio. Is that consistent in all Luss from wherever it's sampled? That it's the future To the of extent that, yeah. Wow. Yes. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So this is going to be part of, you know, I'll be going into this in much greater detail in the book. But so these floods were basically sweeping over the entire North American continent. There was almost no place that was spared. If, you, if Cameron backs up, let's see, to this map right here, take a good look at this map. Because nothing drives home the scale of the phenomenon I'm talking about than this digital elevation model right here. 
you'll notice the lake over on the right. That's Lake Superior, the deepest uh, lake in North America, the largest lake in North America. And if you look right down the middle of the, of the image, you can see the gigantic flow pads. This was the meltdown of the Laurentide Ice Complex over Canada. And what you see there is it reaches up. You can go up there to Lake Winnebagosh, which is the lake in the upper middle. Uh, actually, that's several lakes. But you can see that was the center of outflow right there. And then you can also see the islands, the streamlined islands that have been left in the middle of the flood flow, those prominent isolated hills. So what you had here was roughly a minimum of about 80,000 cubic kilometers of water that it would have taken to create this feature that you're looking at right here. And once you begin to understand the scale of these events that we're talking about here, you can begin to understand why in the aftermath of this, there would be not much left of the previous world. So if you go back to the, to the slides that we were just looking at with those layers, okay, you got a picture before the floods happened, if you bury, burrow, burrow down through those 40 layers, there was another landscape under the, the bottom of that. And that other landscape was the pre-flood world, the antediluvian world, if you want to put it that way, that essentially got buried. And if it didn't get buried, it got washed away. And if, if Cameron goes back to Dry Falls Cataract, now this is, a, this is an example of an erosional feature. An erosional feature, we were just looking at a depositional feature where material is deposited on top of the pre-existing land surface. Here we're seeing where the pre-existing land surface was literally stripped away, literally hundreds of feet of bedrock stripped away by the force of the water sweeping over the state of Washington. And this is, um, this is uh, Dry Falls Cataract. Doesn't uh, the, the image with Niagara superimposed? Uh, it may not have. Oh, I guess that didn't over. come through. Yeah, oh, darn. Okay. Over. I but, may uh, have. Yeah. I think a lot of people have seen it before on, okay. on the Joe okay. podcast. But yeah, yeah pretty this, much the equivalent to this size is if you superimpose yeah, Niagara Falls. Yeah, Niagara Falls is about a third the height. Uh, Niagara Falls would fit right into that little alcove there that Cameron is 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 outlining and it would have been about a third the height because this these cliffs are 400 feet high the water that swept over here was about 400 feet deep so at the peak of the flood you wouldn't have even seen a waterfall it would have just been a bump in a in a torrid sea that would have been choked with thousands of icebergs loaded with millions and mil countless millions of gigantic basalt boulders that are being ground into bits swept along at 50 to 60 miles an hour and uh, yeah, so this was like a typical flow during this meltdown event. And this meltdown event happened. And it happened so inexplicably fast that I have argued for decades now, there's no known terrestrial source of energy that could do it. There's no uh, source of energy just from uh, the Milankovitch, you know, the changing Earth-Sun geometry that could do it that fast. It has to be something else that we haven't considered. What else we got there to look at, camera? Let's see. I've been uh, in that motherfucker, man. It's crazy. Yeah, you've been there, haven't you? Yeah, that was under 400 feet of water too, right? So you wouldn't even see it if you were on top of the water. No. In fact, no, that, that, that image that we were just looking at, that was very close to where Graham and I, there's a picture of my, myself and Graham Hancock's overlooking the, uh, the cataract feature in, in his book, Magicians of the Gods. Mm. 
Yeah, that's intense. So you said 40 times this entire basin was filled up and flowed back out. Yes. And it's when you've shown me, we'll have to in the future uh, be a little more uh, prepared because it is is a lot to take in. But Randall can basically bring up Google Earth and zoom in and zoom out and just you're going to have a Gnostic experience with every level of information he discloses. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's spread that around. And, well, next uh, time we do Grimerica, I'm going to do we'll do full video. Sounds good. Oh, that'd be awesome. Very good. That's the next. Everybody's leveling up. <laughs> but you know what, guys? I am now going to have to cut out. I got a Friday tomorrow. We just signed a contract on a new project today. Awesome. So, yeah, small project, but hey, it's you know Marcus the small work. ones are yeah. But the better the the upside of the small ones is it kind of it's my obligation is not so great that it gives me more free time because if I get involved in a really big complicated project then suddenly all my time gets sucked into that and i don't have time to write anymore so that's kind of what's you know that's what's distracted me over the last three or four or five years so the smaller projects are fine they're just fine we're going to build a studio it's going to be a nice little project about 60 70 000 is all but but uh, then we got more lined up after that but um at some point, yeah, in the near future, I'd like to get back into doing some grand, grander scale things. It's um, a good idea. Yeah, I, I think uh, if anybody out there is is uh, into this type of material and also has to have happens to have a uh, uh, the income that could uh, hire someone like Randall Services, you know, it would not only go far to help him, but it would help everyone else who's uh, gaining uh, so much from this him sharing this information that he's. Uh, Spent his whole life cultivating. So, well, important part of the process historically has always been the establishment of a of a center, a location where the mysteries could be propagated, where the where the knowledge could be brought together, where it could be synthesized, and then where it could be redistributed back out. And that was kind of how these these the the original universities functioned. Was you know they were clearing houses for the archaic knowledge and the wisdom that had been accumulated through the ages. And the interesting part was originally the idea of the temple itself was the textbook. The textbook was the architecture. And so that by going in and understanding the, the geometry and the Arceus, the uh, astronomy, um, the symbolism, the teachings could be uh, conveyed through those mediums, through the ritual. And then, of course, the texts themselves, the sacred text, which could be, you know, hieroglyphics on walls of the temples or it could be petroglyphs. But the idea was that somebody who had the key to decipher them could then bring in students and that way the knowledge could be preserved. And having a place, a physical place, I still think is an important part of the whole process. Mm. You know, particularly having a, a, a specific place uh, within uh, a landscape where the landscape itself is part of the teaching. So that's what I'll be doing this spring is going out and doing more research, trying to connect the dots on this lost Chaco and culture of the Southwest of, uh, us in Mexico, Utah, um, Arizona, because like I said earlier, I think we've just barely begun to understand what was going on there and how that was per, per, almost certainly linked to the Hopewellian culture in Ohio, the Mississippian culture, and in turn to the Mayans. And I think we're going to have to sooner or later admit that, yes, these weren't isolated cultural events, that there was a high degree of cross-pollinization going on. 
prior, you know, in pre-Columbian times in, in North and Central America. And whoever these people were, they had access to one of the ancient streams of knowledge and were employing that in the creation of the great uh, monumental earthwork structures that we find up and down the Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys, you know, and the great temple complexes that we see strewn over 10,000 or more square miles of the Sonoran Desert and what the Mayans were doing in Central America. So that would be another interesting subject for a conversation because I have several thousand slides that I've accumulated, uh, you know, doing field work and comparing that with other things, Egyptian things and showing the parallels and correlations between what was going on in the new world and traditions that we would normally associate with the old world far beyond what we could attribute to, um, independent evolution and, almost certainly showing some level of diffusionism and cross-cultural connections between not only uh, geographic across space, but through time as well. And on that note, wow. I'm going to have to sign off. <laughs> nice knowledge bomb. <clears throat> well, say hello to Brad for me if you see him. I'm sure you'll see him before I do. Yeah, I'll probably see him tomorrow. My, my mind I'll give him a little smack for me. My, I will. My, my mind bit. Oh, Jesus. So I should, so my I should... mind blown out the back of my head. I swear. That's amazing. Holy shit. Good. This oh. is a good thing. Oh, brother, I, I have to come down and visit you. Holy shit. Oh, we'll do God. it. Oh. Do it, man. And we'll, we'll get out and we'll do a little exploring, too. Oh, hell, there's... March, May, you name it. We'll we'll do it. Listen, I'm I'm wide open. Whatever. Where, where, where are you coming from? Ottawa. Ottawa. Okay. Well, in turn, I need to get up there near Ottawa, probably oh, next summer. Okay, okay. <laughs> Charles P. O'Dell. This is one man I've got to get you in contact with. He is like the 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 Canadian version of you. Uh, we had him on uh, like out in the beginning of our show. Completely blew my mind open with regards to uh, uh, being able to uh, signify and uh, be able to identify. Uh, meteor impacts like we spent four hours just identifying meteor impact sites uh, i think it's like uh episode nine for anybody who's listening and uh like he got me really really into this so gotta be there so the pump has been primed oh 100 well the pump was primed back in uh grimerica i forget which episode uh darren i don't know the first one the first two were both before we started numbering them yeah, like that. That's what got me. And then it's the, it's 129 and 100. So it's grammarica.ca slash ep129, uh, grammarica.ca slash ep131. Um, I think grammarica.ca slash Carlson and grammarica.ca slash Carlson two will bring you like 10 or 11 hours. Or just go to grammarica and search, and you'll find it. The first one's probably the best one though. So yeah, I'll be down soon. Trust me. Can All right. Well, you have my you have my email. No, I, I I do. I've got you on Facebook as well. So I'll be in. Oh contact yeah, that's right. As... Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Oh, hundred percent. So, uh, uh, Cameron, if you're still there, uh, like it, we've been going on for like about in total about <laughs> five hours tonight. <laughs> yeah, I, I gave up on time. I I popped the edible right beforehand. I was like, ah, let's just ride this out and. It's been interesting, huh? Holy yeah. shit. 
Well, the, yeah. one, the, 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 the Wim Hof has <laughs> been hitting you since day one. <laughs> well, we should. Uh, I wish Clay had spoken up because I know he was supposed to be part of the podcast. But uh, Clay's been every morning getting out there and jumping in the uh, cold water, and so he had a great idea about you know issuing a challenge. Like everybody, let's let's do this in support of John and in, in support of our longevity. Uh, because what are we waiting for? Like all this material is just pouring out, pouring forth, and we need people to contextualize it. And uh, it's no easy feat. So part of Bearing that burden is probably going to be strengthening our mind, body, and spirit, and uh, it's already organically happening. You see it with jujitsu and float labs and all the types of uh, healing modalities that are really uh, part of the Joe Rogan experience, so to speak. And uh, I think that's that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, man, let's let's work together to kind of mix media and and see how it, people respond. Because I think you know we're all here on this planet. We're trying to get by, and uh, we, we need positive examples of of camaraderie and com, uh collaboration so i'm all i'm all i'm open to uh different ways of organizing all of this so just let me know what you think <laughs>